from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scaff, in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol, in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Thursday, I think, the 18th of June. Yes, it is a Thursday. On this show, I'll bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is. A brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge, I persevere, but find out, do me a favor. It's summertime, baby. What? Oh, I'm so glad it's summer. This school year has been kicking my butt. As you know, I haven't done a syncast in forever. This thing is huge, as you can tell from the podcast feed that you're looking at or whatever. Uh, And I might be recording this in segments. I don't know. I just got back from this awesome lunch with some friends of mine from East Timor. Colleen and Hector. What? What? And uh, that was great to see them. And I'm just trying to take it easy. And, um, yeah, I had a Chromebook training earlier in the week, and my brain is fried, and I just put a new power supply unit into my computer, and it went beautifully. Yes! I'm so glad it went well. And, uh, yeah, I was nervous because I was, like, cutting those little plastic clips that bind cables together, and I was like, if I clip one thing wrong, I could kill my whole computer. But I didn't. I did it all well, and I'm so glad that it went well, and it's all working beautifully now, and I should be able to play Battlefield for, like, 10 hours without having crashes or reboots for no reason. So, I'm trying to take it easy now. It's summer. I'm going to be working on a book this summer. I'm going to be trying to sell other things that I've written. And, uh, yeah, but right now I'm just trying to do nothing and take it easy. It's a beautiful summer day here in Madison. I got the fan going and the chickens are out and Tito is here and I'm fed and I'm happy. I got some water. I got a little bit of a headache, but it's okay because I got nothing on my mind, as Dead Prez said in their song, Summertime. Uh, no work, no school, no shirt, no shoes. Today, all I got to do is go to a barbecue. And it's funny because I have this summer playlist on my iPod that has, you know, I play it on the day I drive away from school for the first time, and I've been playing it all this week. And uh, it has that song from Dead Prez, Summertime. It has DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Summertime, of course. Uh, it's got Northern State, uh, Summer Never Ends, which is a great song. And, um, yeah, it's got We Done by Me Be Manifesto and lots of other stuff. So that's a good playlist, and I love being able to play it because it means that I'm in store for some nice open space of time. And a lot of people talk about, I mean, I suppose I should talk about this in the education section, but whatever, man. Uh, a lot of people are like, excuse me, but you teachers, you don't even work in the summertime. Now, first of all, and I've said this before on this show, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but, you know, I feel like I do nine months or 12 months of work in nine months. So I feel like I do deserve some extra time off in the summer. I also believe that students deserve time off in the summer because, you know, students work hard all school year. And there's a lot of talk about what students lose in the summer and how much, you know, we forget what we've learned in the school year. And I mean, I I can't argue with that research, I suppose, that's there. I don't know. I guess let's assume that there's research there. But from my perspective, look, I've said this too. Summer is the only time all year that I don't have papers to grade. 
even during winter break and summer uh, spring break i've got papers hanging over me and i know i get a week off and i you know i only have to spend the last two days of that break grading papers but it it's it's there it's weighing on you all the time you never get to fully relax because you know you've got papers to grade and you also know if you were to grade a few papers every day you'd have an easier time of it that's not a holiday a holiday is when you have nothing to think about and i believe that teachers deserve a holiday and unless they're going to make it so that we don't have any papers to grade during the, you know if you had a year long school calendar then you would have more frequent breaks that are shorter and you wouldn't have the huge summer so you'd have you know two weeks off every three months or whatever it is and I, I, I'm not confident that if we did that, that I would have no papers to grade during those two-week breaks. And um, I don't know. I like having summertime wide open, and I'm very lucky to have this time. And I think everybody deserves more time off. So if you're listening to this being like, man, I hate you, Duke. You suck. You get all that free time off. You should not have that much free time off. The way I look at it is, look, I'm sorry, dude. I'm sorry that you don't have this much time off. You deserve more time off. Leisure is a guaranteed human right under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So anyway, that's where I'm at right now. Um, I made a note here that I wanted to talk about cell phones in my classroom because I've, I'm going crazy with the cell phones. Like It seems to get worse every year. And as I've said before, in five years or ten years, we won't know who's using a cell phone and who's not because instead of carrying around a phone, you'll just have a microchip in your hand. And uh, instead of having a screen, you'll just have like Google glass but as contact lenses so uh, students will be looking right at me and nodding and smiling and I won't know if they're actually paying attention to what I'm saying or more likely if they have 10 windows open in front of them with Minecraft Twitter Snapchat Facebook Reddit whatever and there's going to be nothing I can do about it except try to raise consciousness and say look we've got to be here now we've got to do one thing at a time and it's hard to do one thing at a time. Monotasking is one of the most difficult things in the world, man. And I, I have problems with it myself because when we're doing the Veteran Gamers podcast, which you should listen to, everybody, if you like video games, check out VeteranGamers.co.uk. The other two guys, Chinny and Stu, will start talking about something and I'll be like, okay, you know what? I don't really have anything to say about this. I'm kind of bored. I'll just check my email real quick. And then I'll be looking at something on my email and they'll be like, so what do you think about this other news story? And I'll be like, oh God, I wasn't listening. And it sucks. Um, so here's the thing. It's cyclical, right? The more you train yourself to do that, the more likely you are to start doing something else the second you get bored. Yeah. So I think it's important for us to recognize, hey, I'm feeling bored. Just that, that should be your first awareness. Like, oh, I'm starting to feel bored. And then recognize what your tendency is. I'm going to start doing this other thing as a matter of habit. And once in a while, I'm not saying every time, but maybe once in a while, you stop yourself from doing that other thing. Stop multitasking. Because uh, we think we can multitask and do everything perfectly. I can do two things at 100%. No, you cannot. You're going to do one of them at 50 and the other at 50, or you're going to do one at 80 and one at 20, or whatever it is. So it's important for us to occasionally do things at 100% and monotask, and so forth. And so, but here's the thing. As a teacher, I don't like to be a tyrant, right? I am an anarchist at heart. I believe in voluntary free association. I don't believe in authoritarianism in general. And so I don't, I don't generally tell students, like, put it away or there's going to be consequences. Uh, you know, if a student is, you know, I, I want the student to pay 100% of their attention to me, and maybe they'll absorb 70% of what I'm saying, right? Just to put, you know, arbitrary numbers on it. If they have their cell phone out, they're maybe giving 50% of their attention to me, and that means they're maybe absorbing 30% of what I say. Okay, I obviously want them to put their phone away and absorb 70% or as much as they can. 
if I kick them out of the room because the cell phone has become a power struggle, they're not even absorbing that 30% of what I say. So that's why I don't kick kids out of the room. I don't make the cell phone this power struggle. Put it away or you're going to get in big trouble, mister. Now, the thinking is, if I make it a power struggle today, yes, they, abs- they absorb th- 0% of what I'm saying today, but maybe tomorrow they don't have their cell phone out, and then they do absorb 70% or more of what I'm saying. And I understand that calculus that some teachers do, and I, you know, I'm not going to tell people how to teach their classes. But what I'm saying is, I think that it's more likely that they'll, they might not have their cell phone out in the future, but they're going to find some other way to zone out. And because I've made it clear that it's just a power struggle, they're going to try to find other ways to win other power struggles. And there won't be, you know, I feel like I, whatever problems I have in my classroom, and I have plenty, I feel like there's a general level of respect and dignity that every student gets to have. And I don't kick kids out of the classroom. And, and it's not, you know, as a result, they're probably not learning as much as they should. And I, I can be more, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I could do a better job of demanding respect, maybe. That's one thing I don't like to do because I know that young people are always surrounded by adults who are like, you're going to respect me and you're going to you know, do what I say because I said so. And, and I try not to run my classroom like that. Now, on the other hand, I don't want to be one of those spineless wimps who's like, you guys, you know, if you want to do the work, okay, it's fine if you don't. There are some teachers who had that attitude of like, whatever, man, you just do your thing. And it's like, it's all good because it's not. And there are kids who, you know, the way I look at it. And I don't know why I'm saying all this. I should be saving it for the book I'm writing about teaching. I should make you all wait to read the book. We haven't even gotten to the news yet. What about Rachel Dolezal? What about Rachel Dolezal? I should be like, I'm not going to talk about Rachel Dolezal because I'm probably not even saying her name right. There's been so much said. I'm not going to add anything to the the discussion, but I feel like I've got to say something about it, right? People keep, what do you think? What do you think, Eric? So anyway, what was I saying? School, And I try to, you know, whatever mistakes I make in the classroom, I do feel like there's a general level of respect and dignity that I reach with my students. And I think that gives me entrees into their minds in ways that I wouldn't get if it were just a power struggle. So whatever, that's some of the stuff I've been thinking about. So anyway, that means I have to try to find other ways to deal with this cell phone madness. And some teachers have a, I made what's called the sleepy screens, cell phone rest home. And I tell the students, look, if you have trouble not looking at your phone, you can put it here in the sleepy screen, cell phone rest home. And you know, when you, at the beginning of class, it's here with me. And at the end of class, you can get it back. But I don't, again, I don't want to make that compulsory. I don't want to make that a forced thing. Like you have to put your cell phone in here. Now, some teachers make it a reward thing where, you know, you put your cell phone in here and you get a ticket. And at the end of the day, we draw for a prize, you know, a piece of candy or something. And I don't know, I might do that. But again, it feels like a carrot and a stick. I feel like you're going to have to trick kids into doing the right thing. And I generally want kids to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. I want to develop students' morality systems and sense of ethics and empathy and You know, do it because it's respectful to me to put your damn cell phone away. But then I thought, you know what? I I believe in forms in the classroom. I've had a lot of success using forms. You know, when a student comes up to me being like, where did I get this bad grade? Uh, What's up with this grade? I actually made a form called what's up with this grade. And they can just, I hand them the form. I'm like, put it in, put it in writing and I'll deal with it later. I don't want to deal with it right now. So there's a space on the form. And again, I think this is something where they can get treated with respect because it's not like I'm ignoring their complaint. I just don't have time to deal with it right now. And I don't want to hear it from them right now. But if they can write down what the problem is, then I will address it later. And so I believe in forms, but I also have used sound effects during the Veteran Gamers podcast for a long time, and obviously I use them here, and I thought, I'm starting to think, like, maybe I could use sound in the classroom more, you know, to, like, try to 
push the kids in the right direction without trying to use carrots and sticks and force and lottery drawings or whatever. So I made this little sound effect that I will play. So here's the thing. Let me tell you how the classroom works. Nobody cares, Piotrowski, move on! No, shut up. Start a class every day is journal writing. Uh, in the hip-hop class, we do daily lyrical analysis, but there's always a first part of class where you know the students are sort of working on their own or whatever, and then we move on to the sort of lesson of the day, the actual class lesson. So during writing time or toy truck time in creative two or daily lyrical analysis time sort of uh they can use their cell phones if they want to listen to music or whatever it's not really daily lyrical analysis time for that because we actually listen to a song together in that time but whatever so the point is that uh after that time i'm going to start playing this your attention please at this time all cell phones must be stored in a pocket or bag thank you because that way i don't have to actually say it every day and i don't have to try to be you know if people don't put their cell phones away i can just play it again your attention please now i'm not going to play it again for you but it's a good sound effect i think so i don't know we'll see i i, I again it's all so weird in terms of the mass psychology and the things that people will or will not do and it's kind of uh it's 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 an interesting challenge if nothing else because I think I probably have more success with cell phones than most people do who make it into a power struggle. But it's hard to tell. Anyway, uh, yeah, this week's uh, urgent action is about Raif Badawi. Oh, this is so heartbreaking. I don't know if you've heard about this, but um, there's a guy in Saudi Arabia who blogged about how he'd like more freedom. And he's been sentenced to a thousand lashes and years of imprisonment, and it's totally bogus. It's a total violation of his human rights. And this is our ally, Saudi Arabia. So the U.S. has some influence in Saudi Arabia, and we have not used it to de demand his release. And, um, yeah, so you should write a letter, uh, send a tweet, and take some action to free Raif uh, Amnesty International. I will put the link in the show notes. Let's talk about some current events. Piotrowski, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world, and we don't want to hear about your classroom. We want to hear about the revolution and what's happening. Talk about politics. All right, settle down. Um, so, oh God, what has been going on? Everything's been going on. Um, there's so the the story that's been blowing up everywhere is Rachel uh, Delousy, Delousy, Dezawi. I don't even remember how to say her name, and I'm not going to look it up because for those of you who don't know, okay, this woman who has been the president of the Spokane, Washington, NAACP for several years. She attended Howard University. Um, she's adopted several black children. She grew up with several adopted black brothers and sisters. And basically, her parents are white. They're of European ancestry. Um, but Rachel Deluzzi, or whatever her name is, she has been, she says she's black. And the question now is, okay, is transracialism a thing just like transgenderism is a thing? Like it's generally accepted that transgenderism is a thing. And the question is, okay, so if a person says, look, I was born a woman, I've been forced to live as a man, but my true self is as a woman and I, I choose to live as a woman, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's their right. That's, a, a, you know, the medical community basically generally agrees that that's the way some people are and, and we should treat them with respect and say that, yeah, we'll call... Uh, Caitlyn Jenner, she, and we'll call uh, um, the one who released the state secrets. 
I can't remember her name. Anyway, uh, we should refer to them as, as she, right? And the Lana Wachowski, the other one, right? So the question is, should people have that same ability to say, like, well, I believe I'm a black person because I, you know, I have the wrong skin or I was born biologically this way, but it's, it's you know, I identify more with this, uh, you know, society classification or whatever. And Dolezal is her name. I can't remember it. Anyway, so there's been a lot of stuff written, and I will link to some things, I guess. Uh, I've put them on Facebook, but I'll put them in the show notes ever. You know what? Listen, people out there, if y'all use the show notes, please let me know. Just send me a tweet or an email or something, and or on Steam, just say, yeah, I appreciate the show notes. Just show notes, yes. It doesn't have to be very long. I just want to know some people check the show notes or like having them there because there's so much work and... Uh, compiling them and I just I don't mind doing it really if people are using them and I guess I use them so it shouldn't be a big deal but I'd like to have someone say yes I need those show notes because the revolution hey the airplanes are flying around there's these fighter jets that do practice runs over in Madison every once in a while there they go right into the danger zone Okay, so there were also riots in Baltimore, and um, I don't know if I talked to this podcast about Tony Robinson, but there have been a lot of unarmed black people been shot and killed by police, and it's totally messed up, and there was the incident with the cop who went to the pool party, and he did a barrel roll, and then he pinned the girl to the ground and sat on her neck and pointed the guns at the teenagers at the pool party, and it's all really messed up. And of course, you know, at first, people were just talking about individual cases. Well, you know, Eric Garner didn't do this, and, and Michael Brown was doing that, and he didn't have his hands up, or he did have his hands up, and this and that. And I think the fact that we've had all these cases, one after another, there's one every week, um, this shows that it's a much deeper issue than just the specifics of an event or this other event or whatever it is. And I think that that means that white America has some real work to do to address the problem of police violence against black people. And it's not, and not just black people, of course, Latino folks have to deal with this too. Even folks of Asian descent in Chinatowns and stuff, you hear, you know, activists talk about police harassment there too. So, you know, white America has a problem with race and always has. And we haven't been very good at dealing with it. I think we've probably gotten a little better over time, but still not nearly where we need to be. And so many people are just going to say, well, you know, the there's a guy on Real Time with Bill Maher this week who's like, well, you know, those those black kids weren't, they were resisting arrest and they were being rude to the police. And look, I, I would tell people, look, don't be rude to police. You know, the dude in Madison, Tony Robinson, he punched the cop in the head apparently. And that's not okay for people to punch cops in the heads. Yes, it's not okay. He apparently mixed several illegal drugs. That's not okay. I don't want to excuse that. I don't, you know, I will tell my students all the time, don't, you know, take illegal drugs and don't punch cops in the head. But the question is, you know, does that mean the kid needs to die? And I dare say that when the well-to-do college kids up the hill in, in the dorms and the frat houses in UW-Madison, when they take hallucinogenic drugs, and they do, and they have bad trips, and occasionally they will, do the cops bust in there with guns drawn? I don't think they do. So how do we explain the difference, right? Anyway, um, yeah, there was a really good piece in a website called theconversation.com, and the headline was, Baltimore Riots, the fire this time, and the fire last time, and the time between. And this was an interview and discussion with all these different people about the riots in Baltimore, and 
this guy named John Rennie Short at the University of Maryland wrote a piece called The Root Causes of Baltimore Riots, and in it he says, among other things, quote, Any event has multiple causes, but there are at least three background factors we should bear in mind. The first is the recent momentum of the police brutality narrative. I was just talking about that. Uh, the second is the lack of trust between police and minority black populations. And the third element is the stifled economic opportunities and limited social mobility of many, in, many inner city residents. And I would add that, that, end quote, I would add that, you know, in the Tony Robinson case, I, I read some Facebook posts that he had put up. I never had him. He went to the school that I teach at, and I never had him as a student, but I know people who did. And uh, I've had students that really remind me of him. And I had students last year who knew Tony. So I feel like, you know, he's not so different from students I've worked with. And the number one thing I, I find with students, um, you know, who remind me of Tony Robinson is that they feel discouraged. They feel like the world doesn't have a lot to offer them. They feel like there's not a lot of direction for them to go in. They don't really know where they're headed. Because a lot of students at our school, you know, they're on the college track and they know they're going to go to UW-Madison and they're, they're going to get a good job and they're, you know, they're really looking forward to the future. And a lot of the students that I've worked with who remind me of Tony Robinson, you know, they they feel more like Walter Lee Younger in A Raisin in the Sun where they talk about like, I see the future laying out ahead of me and it's all a big nothing. And those economic things, look, you can't divorce nihilism and frustration from economics and social structures, okay? So, we, I mean, it's no excuse. It's not as though people in Baltimore are like, you know, okay, unemployment's high, therefore you get to destroy a CVS. But it's the type of thing where they tend to go together, right? When people are frustrated, when people are broke, when people have to hustle all the time to pay the rent and just barely get by, People can only take that for so long, especially when other people are doing so well and refusing to share that wealth. And it's not just, you know, folks in Baltimore and in the ghettos of Baltimore. It's also people working 50, 60 hours a week and barely getting by. Like, I'm surprised there's not more, you know, protest and agitation about economic systems. So that's something to keep in mind with regard to the Baltimore riots. The other thing I want to say about Baltimore, Baltimore riots, and I may have said this, but why on earth did CVS not send like a squad of people to go clean up after it was destroyed? That would have been the best PR for CVS ever to be like, look, we want to repair this store. It's an important part of the community and yada, yada. Now, I heard someone on Democracy Now! say that CVS doesn't hire people from a two-mile radius of the store or something like that because when you do, it increases the likelihood that people are going to steal or aid in a bet, you know, shoplifting or whatever. I don't know anything about that, but... Um, I think CVS, I mean, just from a corporate opportunistic point of view, like I would, if I were working at CVS, I'd be like, send 10 people in there to help clean up the neighborhood and have like hot dogs and whatever, like make it an event of like, look, we care about Baltimore. You know, this, this store matters to us and we, you matter to us as customers. And I don't, I just seemed weird to me that CVS was totally silent throughout the whole thing. Or if they were talking, I didn't hear it. Anyway, uh, back to this article number one for the show. Uh, we're uh, 23 minutes in, and let's see, we have probably about 50 news articles. So at this rate, this podcast is going to be about 10 hours long. Woo! 10 hours of me talking! Uh, <laughs> part two of this Baltimore riots uh, overview is called Redevelopment and the Uprisings by Kate Drabinsky, University of Maryland. And uh, she writes, one of the dangers of seeing the riot as an event is precisely the danger of losing historical perspective about the ways the neighborhoods burning on television are the very ones that have been cut off from the growth of the city's downtown core. And this is the other thing. Look, when we talk about economic development, 
generally speaking, we're talking about certain parts of certain towns, okay? And it's always presented as this is going to help everybody, but it's this it's a very close parallel to the fallacy of rising tides lifting all boats on a social you know, national scale. We like to say that when you cut tax rates for the top 1% or whatever, that's going to help everybody. But the problem is it never actually works that way. So the same happens when you have a general approach of economic growth for a city. It tends to benefit certain areas and other areas, usually the ghettos, usually the places where black and brown people live, they don't benefit from that growth. And the question is, how do you grow an economy while also taking care of the needs of people? Because what tends to happen is we prioritize growth. We prioritize, you know, dropping unemployment and we prioritize, you know, encouraging business and all that. And there's nothing inherently wrong with those approaches. But the, 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 it, the, the next part always comes later. And what that means is it always comes never at all, which is making sure some of that wealth gets into the hands of the people who need it the most. It's the same with automation. When automation happens in a factory, that's not necessarily a bad thing. You have 100 people working in a factory, a robot comes along and makes 50 of them irrelevant. For them to not work on those machines, and for those 50 people to suddenly not have those jobs anymore, that's not necessarily a problem. The question is, do they have access to the wealth that's still being created? Or are those people just kicked out on the street and told, you suck, you have to go find some other way to generate wealth now, and we are going to keep generating the same wealth, except that we get to keep it all, minus 10% for the robots, whereas we were giving 70% to the workers, the humans, now we only have to give 10% to the robots to upkeep them and you know pay for the new robots or whatever, and the company makes all the rest as profit. That's not the way automation ought to work. Automation ought to work by making life easier for all of us and adding to the wealth of all of us. But that's not the way capitalism looks at automation. Capitalism looks at automation as, well, this person owns the robot, therefore any wealth that the robot creates, he or she gets to own all that wealth. And the fact that the robot came about as the result of massive government spending, in other words, all of us paid for the funding for the research that made that robot possible through MIT research and, you know, NASA funding or whatever, all that goes out the window. And the fact is, you know, Manucorp Industries, they own the robot, they get all the wealth that that robot created. That's messed up. Okay, moving on. Uh, John Stewart's leaving The Daily Show. A lot of people are um, sad about this, obviously. I think it's the end of a very important era. I think that John Stewart probably came into The Daily Show around the same time I started teaching. So I kind of feel like all of my adult professional life has been spent observing the world alongside John Stewart. And re I've really benefited from his perspective on the world. And I don't think The Daily Show is going to be the same when he leaves. Uh, his successor is a guy named Trevor Noah from South Africa, and he's known as being an edgy comedian, and he's he's sent a lot of tweets over the years that are, in my opinion, not funny and not cool. I mean, he's issued a lot of tweets that are funny. I laughed when I looked at a lot of his Twitter history, but there's other tweets that are making fun of fat people and, you know, picking on you know groups of people that generally get a hard time already, and that's not okay with me, and I don't think that that means that he shouldn't get to be host of The Daily Show. I just think that I'm going to be 
he has a, he has to prove himself in a way that I don't think John Stewart had to prove himself. Certainly in a way that Larry Wilmore hasn't had to prove himself. A way that Stephen Colbert never had to prove himself. So. I think he has, you know, he's got some baggage he has to deal with. And I hope he deals with it. I mean, I don't want him to just talk about that for the entire first show, but he can't ignore it, in my opinion. I think he has some catching up to do, I guess. Um, But, again, I'm willing to give him a chance. I actually think Larry Wilmore is doing a very good job. I look forward to the nightly show, and I know that it's struggling and it's not as popular as Colbert. It never could be. I mean, let's be real. You know, you're not going to fill Colbert's shoes. And I think Larry Wilmore has a very tough job to do in terms of trying to balance being his own person and giving people what they want after the daily show. And I don't, you know, okay, so for those who don't know, Colbert tended to follow the formula that the daily show had created pretty closely. He'd have two segments where he, you know, would talk about various issues. He'd have recurring segments, you know, um, the word, which was a parody of, uh, you know, Bill O'Reilly's stuff. And then in the third segment, Colbert always had a guest on, just like Jon Stewart always has a guest on the third segment of his show. Well, Larry Wilmore has a different format because he has a panel. And instead of having just one guest, he will have, it used to be four or five people, now it's just three. And I don't think the three-person panel is as successful, especially because he generally stocks the panel with his sort of resident comedians that rotate in and out. And they're kind of hit and miss. So I would rather him just have a guest and just talk. Like he had Killer Mike on recently, and they were talking about Rachel Dolezal, and it was a good discussion. I would much rather have Larry Wilmore just talk to Killer Mike instead of having these comedians just putting in every five seconds with, you know, what what tend to be pretty hacky jokes. Now, on the other hand, I will say about Larry Wilmore, uh, he's, he's got one guy named Mike Yard who's just awesome because he has a thing, oh, I can play this thing now. Diane's going to love this. Wait, go away. No, here. Uh, so there's a uh, part of the show where he talks about um, – he does it. There it is. Uh, so he does a part of the show where he talks about words, and he doesn't do it very often. But this is the title of the show. He said, "Here's time for the segment we call Word Blurred." Word Blurred. <laughs> and I don't know why, but I just love the way that's Mike Yard doing that uh, little jingle there. And Diane says, "It's not a jingle," and I'm like, "It is a jingle. There's a melody there. It's not much of a melody, but it's there." Word Blurred. And for some reason, I just love it. But I say it so much that Diane's like, you have to, you can, you only get to say that once a day. And so, like, I wait for the right time. And then I'm just like, word blurred. And, uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, I, re- I like Mike Yard a lot. He's really funny. He's one of those guys, you know, when you watch The Daily Show, whenever, it used to be whenever Larry Wilmore showed up on The Daily Show, I was like, all right, this is going to be awesome because he very rarely, you know, left you unsatisfied. And I think Mike Yard is doing that. So, for instance, recently when they were talking about the cop who, you know, pinned that girl to the ground and pulled his gun on the teenagers at the pool party, uh, Megan Kelly said something like, well, you know, that 14-year-old girl was no saint. And he goes, Mike Yard says, well, you know, they always say that about uh, black kids who get shot or, you know, harassed or, or uh, you know, tormented by the police. So I've decided I'm going to become a saint, Larry. <laughs> and it's just he does a really good job of taking those ludicrous concepts and taking them to the logical extreme and being funny about it. So well, I don't remember when he said this or why, but he, at one point he's like, I've decided to become Amish. 
<laughs> and he's like, I'm Amish now. So anyway, uh, Mike Yard is really funny, and uh, there's some other the the woman when they were talking about Rachel Dolezal. There's this they had this one woman who was like, uh, "I'm in the woods. Why are you in the woods?" I don't remember her name, but she's like, "I'm in the woods because I'm hunting for white people trying to be black, trying to be un uh, unnoticed as black people." He's like, "What are you talking about? I call them incognigros." And she's like, look, I see one now. And they had done this video reenactment that looked a lot like the Bigfoot footage, except it was this woman, this white woman with like bushy brown hair. And it was like, look, she's trying to pretend to be black. So anyway, um, I think that show does a good job of, um, you know, taking on racial issues in a way that no other show does and being very funny a lot of the time. Now, it's not always funny and it's not as funny as Colbert, but... I like it in general. I think it could be better, and I hope they will continue making it better. They have stopped doing well. They have much less, uh, they much less often do the segment called "Keep It 100," uh, where they ask questions and they're like, "You have to be 100% real." And I, it, I think those are generally like, "Let's put people in an awkward situation and make them say something, and then you know, if they hesitate, then they're not keeping it 100% real," which I think is dumb, but. Anyway, uh, that's what I have to say about John Stewart leaving the Daily Show. <laughs> Uh, a U.S. hostage was killed in Syria, possibly by a Jordan airstrike. Now, okay, if we're going to go from one funny topic, The Daily Show and The Nightly Show, to another, ISIS, um, yeah, look, I will say about ISIS what I've always said, which is terrorism cannot be stopped with military action, okay? Terrorism should be a police matter. Terrorism is something... When you bomb a terrorist group, you probably kill one terrorist leader, you know, and and look, I'll take the, (laughs) I don't often do this, but I will take the Defense Department, the CIA at their word when they say they have actually stopped the spread of Al-Qaeda by killing off their leaders. Let's say that that's true. Okay. They're also killing innocent civilians in those airstrikes and making people say, I hate America because they killed my neighbor and my cousin or whatever. And that's not going to stop terrorism. It perpetuates the cycle, right? And even if the other guy starts it, as we love to say, well, they started it. Even if that's true, you know, the problem in Syria and in Iraq, one of the many problems is, and this is true in Nigeria. We just had a newspaper article about it. I may have a link to it at some point. I know I posted about it on Twitter. If you're not following me on Twitter, people, you're not getting the full story. Because I only save some of the stories that catch my eye for this show. You need to follow me on Twitter as well, at Duke Scaff. Hook it up, yo. Um, when the government of Iraq or the government of Nigeria, the government of Syria kills innocent people as they do. The people are like, we can't trust the government. We don't feel safe with the government. And we hate the government and we hate whoever the government is being supported by, which often is the United States. When the only alternative to that government is this group of psychotic religious fundamentalists in the form of Boko Haram or ISIS or whoever, Sometimes that might be the lesser of two evils for those people in that place at that time. I'm not saying ISIS is the lesser of two evils, the U.S. versus ISIS. Of course, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we have to think about why people might support or at least not fight ISIS in some places at some times. Because 
you have to do what you need to do or you think will do the least harm for your family. And if it means dressing your daughters up and, you know, burkas and stuff and like, you know, kowtowing to their ludicrous, psychotic, religious misinterpretations, maybe it's like, you know what? Hey, at least I'm not getting shelled by the military every week. And at least there's goddamn order on the roads or whatever it is. Like, I, I again, like I don't think we should settle for that either or. But but I also think we have to understand that when we support governments that do horrible things, that perpetuates the cycle of support for illegitimate, violent extremists. So anyway, um, and so the U.S. hostage killed in Syria, by, possibly by the Jordan airstrike, is an example of how sometimes dropping bombs on places doesn't make them better. <laughs> Who would have thought, right? Um, and the ISIS beheads the Egyptian hostages. That happened, and it just breaks my heart, especially because, you know, as with the American journalists, like, there's no there's no political element here. ISIS is just a bunch of psychotic nutcases. And, um, I mean, don't get me wrong. Look, in some places, if they're trying to take over a city that may be a military operation where you defend that city from being taken over. But to think you're going to win in the long term with bombing, just it doesn't work like that. Uh, there were shootings in Denmark. Isn't this crazy? I don't even remember what the shootings in Denmark were about. I think it was probably, you know, Muslim extremists, but I don't remember. Uh, the UNC shootings. Uh, it's so sad that there are all these shootings and killings happening. Today, we just got news about the guy, the white guy who went into the black church in... Charlotte, North Carolina, I think, or something. And he killed like 13 people. It's so sad. You know what? Let me say this. We want to jump right to the analysis. Well, here's the problem. Here's what we don't remember about this guy. Here's what we need to keep in mind about this. Here's what we need to do about that. Everyone's got answers about what we're not thinking about or how we need to look at it or whatever. I think it's important every time, whether it's the America drone strike kills people in a wedding or if it's, you know, ISIS cuts off someone's head or uh, insane white supremacist kills people in a black church or whether it's, you know, whoever kills anybody. We should always start by saying this is really sad and it's a it's a tragic loss of life. And I feel sad when I hear about something like this. And and I, I mean, I feel annoyed when that's all people say about a thing. You know, if your only response to the killing of Eric Garner is, well, that's a very sad loss of life, that's not enough. But that should be where we start. And I'll be honest, after 9-11, I did not say that, and a lot of people assumed that I did not feel that way. And and that was a mistake of mine, because I did feel that way, but I got sick of everybody saying, well, what a sad tragedy. And I was like, let's talk about these other political realities. But... I think it's it's dangerous to lose sight of our humanity by jumping right to the politics or right to the economics or right to the radical perspective without saying, you know what, look, as a human being, this is really, it breaks my heart or it's making me sad or I feel pain when this kind of violence happens. Because one of the most tragic things that we see in the world is people who become hardened to violence and they say like, well, that's just the way the world is. You know what? That's the way the world is if we accept that that's the way the world is. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you believe that's the way the world is, then you it's very easy for you to think, well, I'm going to do that. When I have some power, when I own a gun, I will use it, power, the weapon, whatever it is, and I won't, you know, I don't need to feel bad if I take someone's life because that's the way it is. And and I think a lot of soldiers wrestle with that question, 
And, you know, there's a great quote from, I think it was in Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 11, where someone said, I don't believe you can kill a man without losing part of your soul. And I, I actually do believe that's the truth. Now, I, I've never killed anybody yet, so I don't know. Joke. It's a joke. Um, I, I have no idea how I would feel, but I think it would really mess me up if I had to kill someone. And I say had to because I do believe that, you know, if you're in the military, there might be a situation where your squad's under fire. You have to kill them so your squad doesn't know when your squad gets killed. Um, and I believe a lot of soldiers end up in situations where they're fighting for their brothers and sisters in arms right next to them. Like, that's the thing that's driving them. And that's noble. It's beautiful to see someone fighting to protect someone near them, right? I wish we had more of that here at home in America, right? People supporting the brothers and sisters living in their neighborhood. or And I don't mean fighting with a weapon. I'm talking about, like, sharing the wealth, offering support, you know, acting out of solidarity. Um, but the reality of war, of course, is that you are always fighting for more than just the person next to you. Uh, there are powerful people making decisions about life and death that involve you if you are a part of the military, and it behooves you, as uh, uh, Tim O'Brien says in the things they carried, you know, y y it behooves you to know a little something about why the fight is happening in the first place. Uh, Scott Walker is a serious contender for Republican presidential candidate. Oh my God, I never thought I'd see the day. Uh, if anybody doesn't know, Scott Walker is the governor of Wisconsin, and he's an idiot, and I hate him. Wait, no, I don't hate him. I love everybody. Uh, Scott Walker is hard to love. I'm trying my best to love him, but he's he's difficult to love because he came into office, and one of the first things he did was he waged war on teachers' unions and public sector unions in general, including nurses and other public workers, and that made our lives difficult. And the public generally reacted negatively to that. There were huge protests in Madison and elsewhere. And he's not helped the budget. The state economy is not doing very well at all. He has not added the jobs he was going to add. And so even by his own ludicrous standards, he's been a failure. But in terms of ideology, he has demonstrated a willingness to take on the unions. And that's something that the right wing of the Republican Party loves to hear. And so he's actually, you know, there's like 30 or 25 people who have declared or are obviously going to declare their candidacy for president, a uh, presidential candidate as a Republican Party. And a lot of them are like, you know, crazy people. Uh, ben Carson, I think is his name, is a brain surgeon who like, he said Obama's worse than slavery or whatever. I don't know what the, I don't keep up with these people. They're, 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 they're fringe lunatics, right? Like Sarah Palin style. Uh, clearly don't have a, a chance to actually become president. But the serious candidates, quote unquote, are people like Jeb Bush, who was terrible, especially on education, and Scott Walker, who's terrible, especially on education. And I lived in Florida when Jeb Bush was governor of that state, and I live in Wisconsin while Scott Walker is governor of this state. So I am uniquely qualified to talk about both of them, especially with regards to their education plans. And they're both terrible. They've both made life difficult, more difficult, and for similar reasons, really, uh, for students and teachers and education as a whole. And uh, don't get me wrong, I don't want anyone to start thinking that I'm excusing bad schools or bad teachers or any of that stuff. I'm not ready to have that argument right now. But it just, it, it blows me away that Scott Walker 
is a serious he's a and that's the thing i think the republican party probably loves having these wing nuts in the mix because it makes the the more <laughs> the less wing nutty people seem even more sensible by contrast so i'm just blown away by that anyway there's a news article related to all of this from the new york times and the headline was enter scott walker stage right in October, Emily's List, the pro-democratic abortion rights group, ran a television ad that declared, quote, Scott Walker wants to make all abortions illegal even in cases of rape and incest, end quote. Walker, determined to avoid characterization as an abortion hardliner, immediately countered with an ad that implied that he actually considered abortion to be a matter to be decided by a woman and her doctor. From the ad, quote, Hi, I'm Scott Walker. I'm pro-life. But there's no doubt in my mind the decision of whether or not to end a pregnancy is an agonizing one. That's why I support legislation to increase safety and to provide more information for a woman considering her options. The bill leaves the final decision to a woman and her doctor. Now, reasonable people can disagree on this issue. Our priority is to protect the health and safety of all Wisconsin citizens. End quote. This confrontation between Walker and Emily's list took place on the public airwaves. Out of public view, however, Walker write, wrote a letter dated September 5th to Wisconsin Family Action, an anti-abortion organization, pledging his fealty to the conservative social agenda and noting that in his first term, quote, we prohibited abortions from being covered by Wisconsin health plans in a health insurance exchange, he told the group, adding, quote, we also cut off state funding for abortion providers. He also pointed out that, quote, I am defending the constitutional amendment that defines marriage between one man and one woman end quote, out of the article. So I think this speaks to Scott Walker's willingness to say one thing in public and do another thing in private, especially with groups that are giving him money. And as we all know in Wisconsin, the Koch brothers, who are these billionaire industrialist scumbags who were praised in Time's 100 Most Influential People in the World by Rand Paul, which is why I can't take him seriously, even though he stands up for civil liberties sometimes. Thank you, Rand Paul. Um, yeah, Scott Walker sucks and I hate him. No, I don't hate him. I, I love him, but it's really hard to love him. Um, hi. Oh, we're going to get into the fracking now. I got like a hundred fracking articles and we're 45 minutes in and we're just getting to the fracking. You got to pick up the pace here, Piotrowski. Come on, get some more politics. High level. I don't know why that person wants more politics. We've been talking politics for like 20 minutes. Why are you so mad about politics? I want to talk about fracking. Okay, let's talk about fracking. Thank you. You're welcome, high-strung political guy. Uh, <laughs> high levels of benzene found in fracking wastewater. Data called, this is, what is this from? What leftist hippie. LA Times, right. Leftists. Data called from the first year of those tests, some tests by scientists, uh, found significant concentrations of the human carcinogen benzene in this so-called flowback fluid. In some cases, the fracking waste liquid, which is frequently re-injected into groundwater, contained benzene levels thousands of times greater than state and federal agencies consider safe. The testing results from hundreds of wells showed, on average, benzene levels 700 times higher than federal standards allow, according to a Times analysis of the state data. Now, uh, this is uh, around the same time as this big EPA study just came out that said, and I will have an article about this in just a moment, uh, study of fracking, EPA study of fracking fluids finds no widespread system, systemic pollution. That was the headline from Bloomberg News. Uh, and a lot of people who support fracking are saying, look, this is an EPA study. It shows that fracking is safe. All you people who are worried about fracking, just shut up. 
But there's a lot more to the study than just what the headline announces. So we'll get to that. Uh, but before we got to the release of the study, this was an interesting article from the Huffington Post, which said documents reveal EPA's national fracking study halted by industry pressure. So the industry tried to stop the study. And I dare say that there's probably a good case to be made for the industry pushing the EPA in a certain way and flexing their might and saying, look, EPA, if you come down too hard on fracking, there could be serious consequences for people who appointed you, for people who approve funding for the EPA, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I don't know for sure, but we do know that the EPA's national fracking study was halted by industry pressure. All right, so here's what the article says. Documents released as part of Greenpeace investigation have found that the EPA was forced to rely on shale companies like Chesapeake Energy for data, funding, and access to fracking sites. The shale industry, in turn, constrained the study, limiting what could be studied and when. These constraints led to the eventual cancellation of perhaps the most important part of the study, the perspective section. When the EPA study was first conceptualized, it was supposed to include retrospective and prospective portions. The retrospective pieces would examine data collected by the industry in the past. The prospective section was supposed to uh, was where new scientific study would be done. The prospective studies were supposed to take baseline data from groundwater in areas that had not yet been drilled and compare them to samples taken after drilling and fracking occurred. This type of prospective study, which starts pre-fracking, has never been done before and represented a major advance in the scientific study of fracking's impacts. The prospective portions would be the most reliable way to determine whether oil and gas development contaminate surface water and nearby aquifers. One EPA scientist told Inside Climate News, quote, the single most important thing you could do is prospective studies, end quote. However, the EPA was reliant on two shale companies for access to areas that had not yet been fracked, an arrangement that led to the full cancellation of the entire prospective section of the EPA study. So keep that in mind. When we hear all this stuff, because you will hear this, when people talk about fracking, they're going to bring up this EPA study and they're going to say, well, the EPA says it's safe. And you can tell them, no, the EPA didn't do a certain kind of testing that sh it should have done, that it was going to do, until the fracking companies said, you you're not going to do that. So the study's out, and as I said, the headline is, EPA study of fracking finds, quote, no widespread systemic pollution. From the article now, quote, we conclude there are above and below ground mechanisms by which hydraulic fracturing activities have the potential to impact drinking water resources, the EPA said in the report, but, quote, we did not find evidence that these mechanisms have led to widespread systematic impacts on drinking water resources, end quote. Thomas Burke, the EPA's top science advisor, told reporters that given thousands of wells drilled and fracked in the last few years, quote, the number of documented impacts on groundwater resources is relatively low, end quote. Still, it's not accurate to say that there have been no cases of contamination, he said. Quote, there are instances where the fracking activity itself, end quote, led to water pollution, he said. Quote, the process of fracking itself is one risk factor, but in fact, it's not the biggest one, said Mark Brownstein, vice president of the Environmental Defense Fund. Quote, ongoing physical integrity of the wells and handling of the millions of gallons of wastewater coming back to the surface after fracking over the lifetime of each well are even bigger challenges, end quote. So once again, there's more to this EPA study than meets the eye. I don't want to spend forever talking about it. There's other fracking news we have to get to, and there's other kind of news of other kinds which we have to get to. And I do think I'm going to end up recording this thing in chunks because I'm getting I, I'm I'm an hour in and I'm getting um, bleary eyed. So I might um, 
pause after the current events and then do the rest of it later. Or who knows what? Anyway, pushing ahead for now. Keep going with the fracking! I will. Calm down, stressed out political guy. Uh, more fracking news. Oil and gas execs, quote, pressured Oklahoma geologists not to reveal fracking quakes link. And this is from Russia Today. And I need to say a word about Russia Today because, look, no news source is free from perspective, right? There's situated knowledge everywhere. Every individual has a situated knowledge. That's Donna Haraway's phrase. It's a great term. Uh, every news outlet and every journalist has a perspective they're coming from. Whether that leads to bias in their reporting or not is up for discussion, but we all have, you know, places we're coming from. Amy Goodman was at the Santa Cruz massacre in East Timor in 1991. And so when she reports on East Timor, that's part of her perspective, right? And whatever. So the point is that with Russia today, Russia sells a lot of oil, and when fracking makes energy cheaper, as it does, it means that the cost of oil goes down, and when that happens, Russian sources lose money, and so some people have said that Russia today, for all the good journalistic work they do, and they have been doing a lot of good work, um... They, I don't know the ins and outs of who actually owns Russia today, but, but again, they're coming from a perspective that has generally benefited from oil sales, and it may be that they're focusing a lot on the negative elements of fracking because they have a vested interest in seeing it diminish, which would help oil revenues go up. Now, that's kind of a cynical perspective, but I do think it's valid to talk about, you know, what drives that sort of thing. So anyway, whatever. That's just something to keep in mind. So, the oil and gas execs pressured Oklahoma geologists. Newly obtained emails reveal that Oklahoma geologists were pressured by oil industry big shots not to push on with their assessments of possible links between earthquakes in the state and hydraulic fracturing industry, most often referred to as fracking. More than a year since a sharp spike in earthquakes in the region, which coincided with fracking for oil and gas, the Oklahoma Geological Survey say there might be a possible link. The rise resulted in magnitude 3 earthquakes almost twice daily on average, three times as many as in disaster-prone California. Now, out of the article, let's not kid ourselves. Who doesn't think that bashing apart the bedrock underneath your city might lead to more earthquakes? Who would have thought? I just don't understand how you couldn't think that there's no link. That's like Bill Hicks said about in the United Kingdom, nobody has guns not even the cops, and they had 14 deaths from handguns last year, while in the United States, you know how we feel about guns, ooh, I'm getting a warm, tingly feeling just saying the freaking word, 14,000 deaths from handguns. Let's go through those numbers again because they seem a little silly, right? There's no link between not having a gun and not shooting someone. You'd be a fool and a communist to find a link there. It's the same with fracking and earthquakes. If you don't think there's a connection between fracking and earthquakes, you don't think there's a connection between spilling a glass on the floor and the floor being wet. What is wrong with people? Uh, but after the body issued a joint statement with the United States Geological, Geological Survey in October 2013, saying that, quote, activities such as wastewater disposable, uh, disposal could be a, quote, contributing factor to the increase in earthquakes, oil execs started to panic, according to newly obtained emails by Energy Wire. This allegedly led the OGS, the Oklahoma Geological Survey, uh, to avoid mentioning that the lion's share of the earthquakes in the region was man-made. 
Uh, the silence has lasted since 2010 and was apparently due to the pressure not to disclose the findings from industry groups. OGS geologist at the University of Oklahoma, Austin Holland, was one of the scientists aware of the link, but earlier did not wish to discuss it for lack of direct scientific proof. It now turns out he was later being influenced by oil executives with a vested interest in the continuation of fracking in the area, according to the obtained emails. Uh, when the OGS cautiously joined the USGS assessment in admitting that there was a relationship between the fracking and the growing seismic risks, go away, F-16 planes flying over my house. I think it's the man. Do you think it's the man, stressed out political guy? Yeah, he doesn't want you telling the truth, so he's sending his fighter pilots to shut you down with their noise. Right into the danger zone. Big Brother works like that now. No, I think Big Brother would just... Like, make my podcast harder to find or something. Anyway, uh, we live in a brave new world, not a big brother world. Uh, let's go to the feelies. Um, where was I? Right. Uh, there was a relationship. Austin Holland was called into meetings with his boss at the university, President David Boren, and the... Really? F-16s? This is getting nuts. Shut up. Go away. Uh, so this guy was called into meetings with his boss at the university and the Oklahoma Corporation Commission, OCC. He spoke with Jack Stark of the OCC, then also vice president of exploration at Continental Resources. So there was this meeting. This Basically, this researcher was called into a meeting with the president of the university and this industry hack guy and told, knock it off, don't do this research or don't talk about the link between earthquakes and fracking. So sad. That's not how science ought to be. Scientists ought to be able to do their science and then release their findings to the public and then we deal with whatever they find. That's the way science ought to be done. Come on. A uh, couple more fracking articles. Upstate New York towns consider secession after the state bans fracking. So the state of New York banned fracking. I think I talked about this on the last syncast. Uh, and that made some people who wanted to benefit from fracking so mad that if they live on the border with Pennsylvania, they're like, we'll just join Pennsylvania because they do allow fracking. After an, uh, an initially playful remark by an upstate New York town official about seceding to Pennsylvania after New York banned hydraulic fracturing in December has spurred community interest into the possibility. The statement came late last year from Jim Finch, a supervisor of the town of Conklin, located along the northern border of Pennsylvania in New York's southern tier. While secession is a long shot, it garnered further attention when it was included in a survey conducted by New York State Senator Tom Libus earlier this month, the Associated Press reported, quote, the southern tier is desolate, Finch told local media. We have no jobs and no income. The richest resource we have is in the ground, end quote. And, I mean, look, it's the thing. In, in the movie Promised Land, which is a very interesting movie about fracking, it has John Krasinski from The Office and Matt Damon. Matt Damon! And it's a Gus Van Sant film, and he made Good Will Hunting, so it's a really good movie. Um, they show the perspective of the farmers who are like, Look, we don't have a lot of economic opportunity. And once again, this is the exact same thing I was saying about the ghettos of Baltimore. People who don't have a lot of economic opportunity get desperate. And whether it's we will allow some evil company to start earthquaking our land to get at the natural gas under it, or let's burn on a CVS because we're furious, desperate people do desperate things. And that's why we need to share our wealth with rural farmers who have no income and with black folks in the inner city who have no income, let's share the wealth and give everybody some more hope so we don't do desperate things like burn down CVSs and allow fracking companies to destroy our bedrock. <sighs> um, still more fracking news! 
Florida lawmakers pass bill that arrests local efforts to ban fracking. This is from thinkprogress.org. On Monday, the Florida House of Representatives passed a bill that calls for regulation over the fracking industry for the first time. But the bill doesn't go far enough in protecting the state's environment from fracking, environmental groups say, and it also severely limits local and regional control over the controversial practice. The bill, which passed 82 to 34 along mostly party lines, is the latest in a string of state-level legislation that purport to regulate the oil and gas industry but actually make it harder for cities and municipalities to take independent action on fracking. Lawmakers in Oklahoma and Texas recently passed legislation effectively banning local control over the oil and gas industry. Now, let's keep this in mind. Whenever people talk about, well, local communities can do things better and I believe in giving power down to the local level. I mean, because that's what a lot of conservatives like to say. My Huckabee's always talking about this. Grits and guns and gravy and God and shut up. You're good at alliteration. Fine. Be quiet. Uh, but the idea is that, yeah, like local communities can do what's best. Well, what about when it comes to fracking? Apparently, some people don't believe that. Authorities and industry leaders in these states are worried that more municipalities might follow the lead of towns like Denton, Texas, in instituting a ban on fracking within city limits. Quote, there's definitely an attempt to quash local governments from supporting banning. Jennifer Hecker, Director of National Resource Policy at the Conservancy of Southwest Florida, CSF, told Think Progress. According to Hecker, the bills are an effort to ameliorate public concern over fracking while offering little more than, quote, false assurances. And the frack don't stop. USA Today, I think this is the last fracking story. Thank God. No, we need more fracking stories. Calm down. I don't know who the thank God person is, but that person's tired of fracking news and stressed out political guy. I'm sorry. You're going to have to go get your own fracking news now. Okay. One more. All right. Uh, USA Today had an article that said small amounts of fracking chemicals found in Pennsylvania drinking water. Uh, drinking water in three homes in northeastern Pennsylvania were, was found to have tiny amounts of substances used in the fracking process, according to a study out Monday. The study was published online in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, a peer-reviewed scientific journal. Quote, these findings are important because we show that chemicals traveled from shale gas wells more than two kilometers, 1.25 miles, in the subsurface to drinking water wells, co-author Susan Brantley a Penn State University professor of geosciences said in a statement end of fracking segment back to scott walker oh man okay two more articles here Whew. uh so yeah scott a lot of people have heard about this but uh, it's a great story scott walker tells cpac the conservative political action committee uh that facing protesters prepares him for the islamic state later clarifies Quote, I want a commander. In- I can't do a Scott Walker impression. How would you do a Scott Walker impression? I believe this guy. He doesn't have an accent, really. I mean, he, he has a Midwestern accent, which is just boring and dull and doesn't really sound like anything. Uh, I want a commander in chief who will do everything. I should do it like a whiny, sniveling guy. Like, I want a commander in chief who will do everything in their power to ensure that the threat from radical Islamic terrorists does not wash up on American soil said Walker, a likely Republican 2016 presidential candidate. If I can take on 100,000 protesters, I can do the same across the world. (laughs) Walker immediately sought to clarify his comments as he shuttled between media interviews after the speech. His political nonprofit group also issued a statement. Let me be perfectly clear. I'm just pointing out the closest thing I have to handling this difficult situation is the 100,000 protesters I had to deal with, Walker told reporters. Asked if he regretted the statement, he said, No. 
And I would point out, what, how did he deal with us? I was one of those protesters he had to deal with. How did he have to deal with us? He hid in his office and ignored us. Is that how he's going to deal with the Islamic State? Ooh, burn! Shots fired! You will all misconstrue things the way you see fit, he said. That's the closest thing I have in terms of handling a difficult situation. Not that there's any parallel between the two. Yeah, how could you possibly think that he was trying to make a parallel? What a jackass! I hate him! No, I don't hate him. I'm just, it's really hard to love him, but I'm trying. <sighs> Walker has also previously cited President Ronald Reagan's firing of, air, of striking air traffic controllers as one of the most powerful foreign policy decisions he made. Franklin said. I don't know who Franklin is, but anyway. Uh, and finally, ending on a upbeat note, Ebola. Early calls for help were, quote, ignored, says Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders. I was joking. This is not an upbeat note to end on. I'm sorry. Uh, a, quote, global coalition of inaction contributed to the world's deadliest Ebola outbreak, the medicine uh, charity Médecins Sans Frontières says. Its report, a year after the outbreak was declared, suggests that early calls for help were ignored by local governments and the World Health Organization. The charity says, quote, many institutions failed with tragic and avoidable consequences, end quote. Ebola has killed more than 10,000 people in the last 12 months. The analysis, which includes dozens of interviews with MSF staff, says by the end of August, treatment centers in Liberia were overwhelmed. Healthcare workers were forced to turn away visibly ill patients, quote, in full knowledge they would likely return to their communities and infect others, end quote. In January 2015, at a rare emergency meeting, the WHO admitted it was too late to respond. So, that's the current events, and here comes economics! Yeah, alright, so, uh, economics, what's going on here? Walmart wa raises wages, they raise their wages for half a million employees, yay, kind of. Okay, so... Um, first of all, this is totally voluntary, and we should not wait on Walmart to bail out workers to decide we're going to pay some of our workers better, or to wait for Stephen Colbert to save the schools in South Carolina or whatever it is. I mean, don't get me wrong, those are great things, and this is good news, but it's not the way the society ought to function. We just wait around until some rich person says, okay, I'll just help people out. Anyway, KJRH.com whatever that is, uh, Walmart to give 500,000 employees pay raises and improve scheduling and training programs. Walmart Stores Incorporated is spending $1 billion to make changes to how it pays and trains hourly workers as the embattled retailer tries to reshape the image that its stores offer dead-end jobs. You know what? I'm sorry. You raise wages for half a million employees? It doesn't mean that they're not dead-end jobs. As part of its biggest investment in worker training and pay ever, Walmart told the Associated Press that within the next six months, it will give raises to about 500,000 workers or nearly 40% of its 1.3 million employees. Walmart follows other retailers that have boosted hourly pay recently, but because it's the nation's largest private employer, the impact of its move will be more closely watched. Quote, we are trying to create a meritocracy. Ugh. Really, CEO of Walmart, you really think... That people believe that Walmart's a meritocracy? First of all, raising wages for everybody does not necessarily equal meritocracy. Whatever. Uh, we're trying to create a meritocracy where you can start somewhere and end up just as high as your hard work and your capacity will enable you to go. 
Do I have that sound clip? There we go. Because that's what my response is to Walmart. Don't give me this. Uh, CEO Doug McMillan told the AP during an interview this week at the company's headquarters in Bentonville, Arkansas. So uh, CNBC had an interview with uh, the CEO, Doug McMillan, um, with CNBC's Carl Quint. Quintania on Squawk Alley today. And for some reason, the transcript's all in capital letters, so I'll read it the way I see it. Question! You're the nation's biggest private employer, more than a million employees in this country, and you are raising your minimum starting wage right now! Now, that is a... That's one sentence, apparently, according to the transcript. Why is it all one sentence? Who knows? All right, I'll stop yelling the uh, transcript at you. We want to provide a great customer experience, and we want our associates to know how much we value them. Look, raising wages is good. Don't get me wrong. It's a good thing that Walmart is raising wages for half a million employees. Yay, I'm actually happy about that. The problem is, that's all it is. They're not increasing benefits. They're, and they might be raising wages, but then lowering people's hours. The proof is in the pudding. The question is, how do they follow it up? Because, you know, a lot of times... You know, during the Clinton era, there was this boom in job creation. But in a lot of cases, that was because companies took one full-time job with benefits and split it into two part-time jobs. So it's not as though the number of jobs or the amount of... I mean, again, don't get me wrong. Increased wages is good. The minimum wage should be $15 an hour, and it's going up to that in Seattle. They just passed a $15 an hour minimum wage. LA, I think, is doing it. I don't know why Madison hasn't done it, but soon, hopefully. Come on. And people go, well, yeah, we're going to have all these jobs get lost because the minimum wage is going up. By that logic, let's drop the minimum wage to $5 an hour. Jim Hightower once said, you know, it's not just about jobs. Slaves had jobs. It's about what we, how much of the wealth we get that we are creating. Yeah, because we're creating a lot of wealth, all right? We deserve our fair share of that wealth as working people. Uh, yeah, you've a question. You've been a target for a long time. For Target, because <laughs> that's their competitor. From critics who argue that you didn't pay employees enough, do you wish you had done this earlier? And if so, why didn't you? Answer, we, uh, we make wage adjustments all the time. We decided this is a good moment to be bold in the changes we're making. And again, it's really aimed at running a good business. <laughs> Don't give me that, because the business decisions that you make are all based on the formula. A times B times C equals X. If X is less than the cost of a recall, we don't do one. This is largely a PR move. I mean, it's going to cost Walmart a lot of money, probably, I mean, unless they really drop everyone's hours. But it's it's basically a PR move, and they've always determined wages on what's the lowest we can pay people and still get away with it. And what does it mean to get away with it? You end up getting decent workers who, you know, don't call in sick every other day or whatever it is. Uh, annually, we go through wage and benefit reviews and make adjustments. We want to make it blah, 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 blah. I don't know why I copied all of this. There must be something. It's created a tremendous opportunity for me. It has created a tremendous opportunity for many other people, blah, blah, blah. Okay, moving on. Uh, Forbes, Wall Street costs the economy 2% of GDP each year. This is Forbes magazine saying this. Okay, look, let me give you a breakdown of the business press for those of you who don't follow it as closely as I do. Uh, I know, why not? It's so exciting. I'm, this is boring. I'm bored now. I need to get that clip for the veteran gamers. Uh, 
Okay, so the, 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 on the left side of the political spectrum of the business press, well, on the actual left side is dollars and cents. There's a really good leftist um, economics publication called Dollars and Cents, S-E-N-S-E, -E, and uh, they publish a really good critique of the business world and economics news and all that stuff. Uh, so they're good. They're on the actual left. And then center left is uh, Bloomberg Business Week, and their website looks like garbage these days. But they do a lot of good reporting, and uh, you know, Noam Chomsky once said that the business press is the only press that tells the truth. Which, I don't know if I totally agree with that, but I, you get a lot of interesting perspectives. That's why I read the business press, because you see a lot of things that you don't see anywhere else. Uh, so, they're on, uh, so, so Business Week is the center left. Um, center right is like the Financial Times. And unfortunately, they're really into making money off of everything. So you can't even read the Financial Times online unless you have a subscription, which is weird, but whatever. And then to the right of Financial Times, on the right side of the political spectrum, is Forbes. So for Forbes magazine, it was created by Steve Forbes or John Forbes, whoever the hell the Forbes family, rich people from back in the day. Uh, TV stations, plantations, wealth is very stationary. Osajifo said they call it primitive accumulation. Um, that's from the coup. So for Forbes magazine to be saying that Wall Street costs the economy 2% of GDP each year, that's big. That's a big deal, you know. That's like... Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! talking about, you know, like, well, Obamacare is a bad idea and single-payer medicine would not be a good idea. So anyway, uh, this is a really good article. I'm going to read a good part of it, so bear with me, people. Quote, Wall Street is back, says the New York Times, and the economic cost is high. The excessive financialization of the U.S. economy reduces GDP growth by 2% every year, according to a new study by the International Monetary Fund. So again, look, it's not just Forbes saying it, it's the IMF saying it. I mean, when the IMF and Forbes both say something, it's kind of hard to argue with it from a their real leftist perspective. What the hell? That's a massive drag on the economy, some $320 billion per year. Wall Street has thus become not just a moral problem with rampant illegality and outlandish compensation of executives and traders. Wall Street is a macroeconomic problem of the first order. This is Forbes magazine saying this. Properly scaled, the financial sector is a good thing. Problems occur when the financial sector gets too big. When the financial sector loses interest in the boring returns from financing the real economy and instead devotes its efforts to activities that are more lucrative in the short term, like playing zero-sum games or even negative-sum games, through complex transactions aimed at making money out of money, then excessive risk-taking occurs with misallocation of human and financial resources and periodic financial crashes. And this is exactly what happened in 2008, people, okay? Throughout history, uh, periods of ex excessive financialization have coincided with periods of national economic setbacks, such as Spain in the 14th century, the Netherlands in the late 18th century, and Britain in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The focus by elites on, quote, making money out of money, rather than making real goods and services, has led to wealth for the few and overall national economic decline. If the financial sector were the proper size, this is Forbes magazine talking about the financial sector, if it were the proper size, the U.S. economy would be enjoying a normal economic recovery of 3 to 4% per year instead of the dismal 1 to 2% of the last few years. So I'm not going to keep reading the whole article, but they, the headings of this article include undue political influence, in banking criminality is legalized, widespread felonies, the origins of criminal misconduct, and the political will to act. This is Forbes magazine. I, the, while I was reading this, I, I think I was in the learning center or something at my school, and I just kept going like, 
oh my god oh my god and people were like what i'm like forbes magazine says that wall street costs the u.s you know two percent of its gdp every year and everyone's like what what are you talking about <sighs> i wish there had been an economics teacher in there with me anyway i was blown away by that you should read that article it's really interesting and it's good ammunition anytime somebody starts talking about how great wall street is you can be like look read this forbes magazine article about how bad wall street is for america um, classic Wall Street villain to haters, quote, bite me. <laughs> this is from Gawker.com. Dick Fould was head of the investment bank Lehman Brothers in 2008 when the bank collapsed in the biggest bankruptcy in history, kicking off the worst part of the financial crisis. Who can say if Dick Fould ever did anything wrong? Not Dick Fould. As the Wall Street Journal reports, Dick Fould has, quote, no regrets. And now this is quoting from the Wall Street Journal. When asked why he didn't simply ride off into the sunset after Lehman's collapse, Mr. Fold responded, Why don't you just bite me? He quickly followed up by saying he couldn't give up and felt he had no choice but to start his new firm, Matrix Advisors, LLC. He is Agent Smith. Why don't you just bite me? Oh, Wall Street. I love you so much. Bite me. Robert Reich. Okay, people, look, if you haven't seen Robert Reich's movie, Inequality for All, you've got to see it. Stop what you're doing right now. Turn off this podcast. Go to Netflix and watch it. It's awesome. Inequality for All. It's funny. It's entertaining. The visual design is excellent. The animation is fluid and fun to look at. It really breaks things down in easy to understand language. It's got biography of him along with, you know, like stories about historical events. And he just puts it all in this really good framework. And I can't recommend it enough. Inequality for all. Watch it. Uh, Anyway, he wrote a piece called uh, Wall Street's Threat to the American Middle Class, and I found it in the Baltimore Sun. It was probably syndicated or whatever. Uh, Robert Reich, a former U.S. Secretary of Labor, is professor of public policy at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of Beyond Outrage, now available in paperback. His new film, Inequality for All, was released in September. Uh, presidential aspirants in both parties are talking about saving the middle class, but the middle class can't be saved unless Wall Street is tamed. The street's excess- excesses pose a continuing danger to average Americans and its ongoing use of confidential corporate information is defrauding millions of middle-class investors. Amen, brother. Yet most presidential aspirants don't want to talk about taming the street because Wall Street is one of their largest sources of campaign money. And this is why, out of the article, this is why it's so important for us to pass meaningful campaign finance reform and repeal this stupid uh, Citizens United ruling because it's it's... Wall Street's going to sink its money into our system unless we change the system. And therefore, we're not going to do what's needed in order to stop Wall Street from bleeding us dry, as Forbes magazine pointed out. Uh, The American middle class needs stronger bank regulations, not weaker ones. Last summer, bank regulators told the big banks their plans for orderly bankruptcies were, quote, unrealistic. In other words, if the banks collapsed, they would bring the economy down with them. Dodd-Frank doesn't even cover bank bets on foreign exchanges. Yet recent turbulence in the foreign exchange market has caused huge losses at hedge funds and brokerages. Both parties have been drinking at the Wall Street trough. In the 2008 presidential campaign, the financial sector ranked fourth among all industry groups, giving to then-candidate Barack Obama and the Democratic National Committee. In fact, Obama reaped far more in contributions from the street than did his Republican opponent. 
Wall Street also supplies both administrations with key economic officials. The Treasury secretaries under Bill Clinton and George W. Bush, Robert Rubin and Henry Paulson, respectfully, had both chaired Goldman Sachs before coming to Washington. And before becoming President Obama's Treasury secretary, Timothy Geithner, it's like some little weasel, wasn't he in a position of power when all the stuff went down, down in the first place when I listen to you? Things seem to make sense. I listen to him. All I hear is blah, blah, blah. Timothy Geithner had been handpicked by Rubin to become president of Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Mr. Geithner is now back on the street as president of the private equity firm Warburg Pincus. <laughs> Warburg Pincus, what a dumb name for a company. <laughs> it's nice that presidential aspirants are talking about rebuilding America's middle class, but to be credible, the candidates have to take clear aim at the street. And who's doing that? One man, Bernie Sanders. That's why I'm voting for Bernie Sanders, among many other reasons. And everyone's talking about, oh, I had this argument on Twitter. Someone was like, throw your vote away. Thanks a lot. It's basically a vote for Republicans because there's no reason. Shut up, all right? I voted for Ralph Nader in Florida in 2000, okay? I am not going to settle for some milk toast corporate Democrat dingus. And as much as I want to see a woman president, I will not be voting for Hillary Clinton because she was on the board of directors at Walmart and she's basically a tepid, middle-of-the-road conservative Democrat and I'm sorry, Obama's done some good things, and I'm glad that Obama's been president for the past eight years rather than Hillary Clinton, but I want Bernie Sanders rather than Hillary Clinton, okay? So I'm sorry, Hillary. Uh, you know, everybody, I, 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 I don't like being in the position. I wish we had instant runoff voting so I could say first choice Bernie Sanders, second choice Hillary Clinton, but that's not the way it is, okay? And I refuse to let my vote go to some namby-pamby a spineless wimp like Hillary Clinton. Um, yes, that means proposing to limit the size of the biggest Wall Street banks to resurrect the Glass-Steagall Act. Yes! Thank you, Robert Reich, for saying it. Uh, the Glass-Steagall Act used to separate investment banking from commercial banking uh, to define insider training the way most other countries do, using information any reasonable person would know is unavailable to most investors, and to close the revolving door between the street and U.S. Treasury. What a great piece. Everybody should read that piece from Robert Reich. You should read all these things. Uh, okay, so uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin wrote the book Too Big to Fail, which I started reading because it was the first book that came out about the 2008 crash, aside from the report of the mission from the U.S. government, but I got to be honest, I got about a third of the way through Too Big to Fail, and I was just like, it's all about personalities, and like they spent like 10 pages telling the story of this one, you know, chief financial officer, and how they got into the, where they are, and they, they really like driving fast cars, and blah, 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 and they went to this school, and they were friends with this person, and I'm like, I'm sorry, it really didn't make me feel like I understood what happened. And then I read Predator Nation by Charles Ferguson. I was like, yes, finally, the book I was looking for. And Matt Taibbi's book, The Divide, is also really good. Uh, yeah, so anyway. Anyway, uh, so Andrew Ross Sorkin uh, wrote a piece in the New York Times, which is called Reflections on Stress and Long Hours on Wall Street. And it's about this guy named uh, Gupta and what was his name? Uh, I want to get his first name right because this is an important story here, people. Um, da, 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 da. Uh, so, oh, I'm going to say this wrong. Sarvshresh. Sarvshresh. S-A-R-V-S-H-R-E-S-H-T-H. Sarvshresh. Gupta. Mr. Gupta. Uh, so anyway, he killed himself by probably jumping out of like a tall balcony on 
in the Goldman Sachs building? Uh, really sad story. Um, his death, one of numerous unexpected deaths or suicides of young bankers over the last year, has caused a new round of reflection and reevaluation by Goldman and other Wall Street firms about their work policies just two weeks before a new class of college interns descend on the industry for the summer. Just last week, Thomas J. Hughes, a 29-year-old banker at Moellis & Company, was found dead with drugs in his system after falling from a building in Manhattan. Uh, maybe Mr. Gupta didn't jump. Maybe I was thinking of the other guy who jumped, but... Um, it probably was a suicide and he had told his father, this job is not for me. There's too much work and too little time. Uh, he had quit, but then he went back and it's just so sad. Um, yeah. So excerpts from Mr. Gupta pair, the father, uh, of Mr. Gupta, there was an article, uh, in a magazine called business insider and the headline was a father's heartbreaking essay about the untimely death of his 22 year old Goldman Sachs analyst son. Um, yeah, he wrote a piece on medium.com, which is this like web publishing format that anybody can access. Um, it has since been retracted, but they quoted it in Business Insider. Uh, Pop, I do not get enough sleep. I work 20, This is what the guy told his father. I worked 20 hours at a stretch during certain weeks. He was working on weekends, too. I protested, son, you will ruin your health, I complained. He would say, come on, Papa, I'm young and strong. Investment banking is hard work. And then he started complaining, this job is not for me. Too much work and too little time. Uh, and then the father said, you're young and ambitious. Keep going. And then he quit. And then he went back. Um, yeah, it's so sad. And um, he called at, at, on April 16, 2015, 3.10 p.m. India time, um, midnight California time. He called and said, it's too much. I have not slept for two days. I have a client meeting tomorrow morning. I have to complete a presentation. My VP is annoyed, and I am working alone in my office. And the father said, take 15 days, leave, and come home. And he said, they will not allow it. And I said, tell them to consider this as your resignation letter. And um, he was found dead. Ah, oh, boy. So, yeah, that's just really sad. And, um, yeah, I don't know. It, it's. I think it, you know, look, everybody who is trying to start a career right now is in a tough spot because most people trying to start careers right now are burdened with student debt, which is a disgrace. It's the companies, the banks, and the federal government even getting paid off of student debt. And it's a disgrace. Germany, college is free. It should be free in the United States. It was free at UC Berkeley for a while, and it ought to be free. Uh, college education should be free the way that secondary education is. Um, but, but even given, you know, whatever... The other reason starting a career is tough for a lot of people now is that companies know that they can just like demand everything of you and you don't have a lot of choice in how you deal with it, right? So you have a lot of people who are struggling and hustling trying to, you know, prove themselves to their companies or whatever it is. And I mean, part of that is just being young, you know, when I started teaching, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do everything. And I did. And I, you know, I I was exhausted for a lot of my first few years of teaching. Not like now when I'm not exhausted. But I think on Wall Street it's special because they have so much... Um, the, the, the bosses on Wall Street have this idea that the workers are... You know, it's kind of, I'm sure, a game to get as much as you can out of the workers for as little money as you can pay them. And 
you know, that's their entire business model, short-term gain now. So why would it be different from how they treat their own employees when it comes to how they treat their customers or anyone else? So it's just really heartbreaking for me to realize that, you know, again, this is the thing. Look, when we occupy Wall Street, it's not just because we want to see the wealth distributed to the rest of America more fairly, but also we recognize that there are some people in Wall Street who are victims of the same system of inequality and, and, and lust for greed. Um, killing kills the killer, as they say, right? Uh, Wall Street Journal said banks prep defense for anti-Wall Street campaigns. So the presidential campaigns, every, some people are going to be taking aim at Wall Street. But as I think I reported here last time, uh, the banks know that Hillary Clinton's anti-Wall Street rhetoric is just rhetoric. It's just a lot of bluster. She doesn't mean anything by it. Top executives from the biggest U.S. banks concerned about anti-Wall Street rhetoric already bubbling up on the 2016 campaign trail are working to push back against the prevailing narrative that banks are bad. Senior executives from seven of the biggest U.S. banks gathered or dialed into a March 31st meeting on the 51st floor of the Bank of America Tower in New York to discuss the upcoming election cycle and how the firms can counteract what they view as false and damaging statements about large banks, according to emails reviewed by the Wall Street Journal and people familiar with the meeting. I love it. You know how these banks are probably going to counter this anti-Wall Street rhetoric? They're just going to go on the news networks that they own and say, no, we're fine. Banks get a bad rap, but we do a lot of valuable things for the economy. <laughs> Those participating included officials from J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup, blah, 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 State Street Corp., la, yada, yada. Uh, this was um, the following... Uh, they. Uh, these people brief chief executives of the banks and other large financial firms the following week during a gathering in Washington hosted by the Financial Services Forum, a trade group that represents the CEOs of the nation's 19 largest financial institutions. Yes, they need a trade group that will represent them because as CEOs, they have so little power. They need some organization to like help get their point across because they never get a chance to... Barack Obama advances rule hitting Wall Street and financial advisors. Well, that's some good news. This is from Politico.com. President Barack Obama is pushing ahead with a hotly contested rule to require more financial advisors to provide only advice that's in the best interest of their clients, a standard that's sure to invite more conflict with business groups in Wall Street, but that will also solidify his support among Elizabeth Warren and other Democratic populists. Out of the article, apparently there are people who think financial advisors should be able to also provide advice that's not in the best interest of their clients. You know, I think you should take all your money and throw it in the river. Who are the people? See, and again, look, this is why all we need to do is ask that people be honest. What do you really want in these rules? Do you really want to make the rules or keep the rules, apparently, such that financial advisors can recommend things that are not in the best interest of their clients? That's insane. It's like saying doctors should be able to tell their clients whatever they want. Like, no, you have to help the person get better. Ah! In a speech to AARP on Monday, Obama will announce that he's telling the Labor Department to advance a proposed regulation that would apply the fiduciary standard to a wider circle of retirement advisors, rewriting rules the administration says have become badly out of date since they were written in the 1970s. Uh, man, I should have put this earlier. Uh, 
Business Week had an article, We thought our pay would be higher, Wall Streeters say in poll. In a mid-April survey of traders and analysts, money managers and executives who are Bloomberg customers, finds concern that Wall Street may continue to shrink as tighter regulations crimp profits, and many respondents have little faith that regulators will prevent the next meltdown. Banks, they say, are still too big to fail. Once again, people who work in the financial services or, uh, industry are saying that the banks are too big to fail and that we're not going to be able to prevent the next meltdown. Ah! The largest banks, after getting bailed out in 2008 and 2009, are under pressure to reduce costs as new regulations force them to use less leverage, take less risk, and get out of some businesses altogether. That means cutting pay. It's a topic executives discuss every quarter. In earnings calls in April, Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman and J.P. Morgan Chase CFO Marianne Lake were among those boasting about declines in employee pay as a portion of revenue. How sad is that? Yeah, we've been cutting our employees' pay. Isn't that good news, everyone? And th this thing is, to some people, that is good news. And that's a sign of an economic system that's totally messed up. High-frequency trade satire from The Onion. I don't even remember putting this in here, but okay. Uh, Wall Street firm develops new high-speed algorithm capable of performing over 10,000 ethical violations per second. <laughs> Calling it a major breakthrough that will... Uh, for those who don't know, The Onion is a satirical newspaper. This is not an actual news story. It's just some funny stuff to almost end... I got something else here. Oh, oh my God, that's my favorite article ever. Uh, so anyway, this uh, Onion article, calling it a major breakthrough that will significantly expedite and streamline its daily operations, Wall Street financial firm Goldman Sachs revealed Thursday it has developed a new high-speed algorithm that is capable of performing more than 10,000 ethical violations per second. Quote, with this new automated program, we'll be able to systematically deceive investors, engage in conflicts of interest, and execute thousands of other blatantly unethical dealings in the time it takes to press a button, says John Waldron, co-head of Goldman Sachs' investment banking division, who added that the high-frequency and Propriety system will be able to break more rules in a minute than an entire floor of morally suspect security traders, uh, financial analysts, and portfolio managers could over the course of a week. Quote, in the past, if one of our brokers wanted to exploit a questionably legal regulatory loophole or breach the covenant of good faith with an investment client, that would require hours of manually contravening the basic principles of professional integrity. But this innovative system will allow millions of such transgressions to go through every single day. Going forward, I expect this revolutionary program to be the cornerstone of our business. Upon, uh, end quote. Upon learning of the advanced new unethical algorithm, investors initiated a buying frenzy on Goldman Sachs stock, sending share prices surging more than 30% to $245.46. And finally, thank you, Duchess. Oh, I don't know how to feel about this article. I'm conflicted, actually. Uh, from the Wall Street Journal, Sky Mall files for bankruptcy. Okay, so for those who don't know, I assume people in the UK don't know, but maybe you do. Uh, Sky Mall is the most, it was, I guess, the most ludicrous catalog ever created. It was found in airport, uh, airline, uh, air, when you get in an airplane, there was always one in the seat in front of you, right? The pocket. And it only contained the most idiotic, asinine, overly expensive garbage ever made by human beings. It was all just atrocious crap. Like, big fake rocks that you can use to put over, like, you know, pipe fittings or whatever on your yard. Or or it had, like, stairs for dogs who, 
you know, can't jump up onto the couch or whatever. It was all just horrible, horrible crap. My two favorite things I ever saw in Skype, because I used to dive for it. Every time I got an airplane, it was a joke. The, the Duchess always gave me one when she uh, got off an airplane. So or when I went on an airplane, I just went racing for Sky Mall. Ah, I can't wait to look at all this horrible crap. Uh, my two favorite things I ever saw in Sky Mall were, number one, there was, <laughs> there was, I'm sorry. There was a um it was like a dance dance revolution video game. It was like a standalone thing. Everything was standalone. They didn't sell actual video games in this catalog. It was all I mean they it, sort of but it was a standalone thing. You had to pay $100 for it and it played one game. So this it was like a light up, you know, thing. It would plug in your TV or something. And it said <laughs> learn how to dance the easy way without distracting music. Because, you know, the last thing you want when you're trying to dance is distracting. Would you turn that music off? I'm trying to dance. And the other one, the the mo- this is one actually almost made me cry. This is the most disgraceful thing ever. It was a solid gold record, you know, in a frame. And it had, like, a picture of the artist. And, you know, and it was made. I know, I remember it said it, like, it came with a little plaque that had the name of the song and it was uh it was made from the door of the studio where the song was recorded and it was like $5,000 for this gold record or whatever and it was John Lennon's Imagine you know the song that goes imagine no possessions like oh my god could you pick a more offensive song to make this re- oh god it was just so like this has to be a joke. I, I refuse to accept that a person would say, yes, let us sell that. Uh, so anyway, Sky Mall is filing for bankruptcy. It's gone, right? The company behind the in-flight catalog Sky Mall filed for bankruptcy protection, a victim of evolving rules and technology that now lets airline passengers keep their smartphones and tablets powered up during flight. I guess it's too easy to shop on a plane. You don't need a catalog anymore. After 25 years selling quirky products, like a dark quirky, that's a good way to put it, quirky products. Another way to put it would be horrible garbage that the world is worse off for having in it. Uh, after 25 years selling quirky products, like a Darth Vader toaster or a paper towel holder with USB ports, that's right, a paper towel holder with USB ports, Sky Mall LLC is seeking a court-supervised sale of its assets, according to papers filed. I wonder how much their assets are going for. Wouldn't that be awesome for me to own some Sky Mall assets? Uh, according to papers, da, 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 we are extremely disappointed in this result and are hopeful that Sky Mall and the iconic Sky Mall brand find a home to continue to operate, acting chief executive Scott Wiley said in a statement Friday. I have news for you, Mr. Wiley. You won't. Sky Mall is going to die. I mean, dude, look, if bookstores can't stay open, then I sure hope Sky Mall can't stay open. The company, which started in 1989, fully suspended its retail catalog operation January 16th and laid off 47 of its 137 employees. They had 137 employees? For what? You clearly only needed one person to lay it out because the layout was garbage, and most companies that advertised in SkyMall did their own layout. It was the weirdest catalog in the world because every page was a different company, and every page was laid out totally different. Um, SkyMall's parent company, Exhibit Corp., and it's like the rapper exhibit X H I B I T. Yo, dog. Uh, which acquired the business in 2013 is also seeking Chapter 11 protection. Oh boy, what can you say about Sky Mall? Isn't that crazy? All right, let's talk education. 
on SkyMall. I should like take a day and be like, you know what, people? Look, I need to tell you about SkyMall. I need to get my hands on one if I'm going to do that. Alright, listen up, people. If you know where I can get a SkyMall, there's probably like a landfill with like 7 billion copies of SkyMall in it. Uh, Alright, so we got some education articles here. Uh, a lot of these are probably teachers complaining because there's been this rash of like, people, teachers, like I'm on the Reddit about teaching, our teaching or our teachers or whatever it is, uh, and like a lot of people there are just sick of these letters because we get one like every month where someone leaves the profession saying, I love this profession. I can't, I've done it for 10 years. I can't do it anymore because it's become too horrible. Now I would say in, in the defense of education as a profession, before you leave the profession, try a different school or a different school district because there's, I mean, there are big sweeping changes across the nation and around the world that are changing the way we teach. But it also varies significantly from district to district and school to school. So, I mean, that would be my first advice before people start leaving the profession, but whatever. Um, so this is a piece called What I Want People to Understand About Why Teachers Are Frustrated. And it's from a website called binkiesandbriefcases.com. And I have no idea who runs that. Uh, I don't think this person left the profession. But anyway, uh, it's got some good points. Uh, our system is not just broken. It is shattered and slicing our children and our teachers with shards of its jagged remains. That's an interesting image. As a mother and an educator, I have a responsibility to say so. When I taught in Florida, my students, who were in a gifted program in a very affluent area, tended to score around the 98th percentile on their standardized tests. When I moved to Pennsylvania and taught briefly in a lower-income urban environment, my students' test scores were around the 40th percentile. I was the same teacher, and I also had more training and more experience by that point in my career. I did not magically become 50% less effective. All I did was change the environment in which I was teaching. The students in the urban environment did not have the same access to daily science classes, state-of-the-art computer and science labs, and libraries. They had more real-world stressors like hunger and poverty complicating their school experience, and discipline was an issue for that entire school district. It should not have been a surprise that their test scores were lower. And the rest of the piece is good too, but, uh, you know, this is what? It's hour two and we're halfway through the second hour, so I don't want to drag it out too much, but read that piece. Uh, and speaking of which, uh, thank you to Jason because he sent me a piece uh, from NPR called Where Have All the Teachers Gone? Where have all the teachers gone? There was a song back in the day called Where Have All the Flowers Gone? Several big states have seen alarming drops in enrollment at teacher training programs. The numbers are grim among some of the nation's largest producers of new teachers. In California, enrollment is down 53% over the past five years. It's down sharply in New York and Texas as well. In North Carolina, enrollment is down nearly 20% in three years. Quote, the erosion is steady. That's a steady downward line on a graph. And there's no sign that it's being turned around, says Bill McDermott, uh, the dean of the University of North Carolina School of Education. The list of potential headaches for new teachers is long, starting with the ongoing ideological fisticuffs over the common core state standards, high stakes testing, and efforts to link test results to teacher evaluations. Throw in the erosion of tenure protections and a variety of recession-induced budget cuts, and you've got the makings of a crisis. Yes, it's been the makings of a crisis and then I th again like you know I think this is really important because it's one thing for teachers to complain you know we complain a lot of the time um, but when we can't get people to become teachers what are we going to do 
about the fact that we have all these kids and no one to teach them. We've already got a hard time finding math and science teachers. It's easy to find English teachers, which is why I can't leave my school because it's like it would be hard to get a job somewhere else, especially if I'm expecting to get paid more than a new person. Um, the job also has a PR problem, McDermott says, with teachers too often turned into scapegoats by politicians, policymakers, foundations, and the media. You're damn right. Quote, it tears me up sometimes to see the way in which people talk about teachers because they're giving blood, sweat, and tears for their students every day in this country. You're damn right we are, McDermott. Tell it. Uh, there is a sense now that if I went into this job and it doesn't pay a lot and it's a lot of hard work, it may be that I'd lose it. And students are hearing this, and it deters them from entering the profession, end quote. One possible path out of this crisis is to pay teachers more. <gasps> Gee, you think? But across the country, proposals to boost pay or give teachers merit pay have been stalled or scrapped altogether. Now, notice what NPR is doing here. Again, I hate NPR so much, and this is a perfect example of why. They start out the sentence by saying, proposals to boost pay... And we were like, yeah, let's boost pay. And then they say, or give teachers merit pay in the same breath as if they're the same thing. And they're not. Okay? Merit pay is a way of turning teachers into salesmen and saleswomen. And that's not what we need to do. Because I can't make students do the work. Okay? And I, I, I think I'm a really good teacher. But the idea that I'm going to add a certain amount of value to each student every year is ludicrous. That's not how education works. And that's not how education ought to work. Okay? It's a business mindset, and I hate it. An analysis just out from Georgetown's Edunomics Lab. I don't even know what that is, but the name gives me a rash. Uh, argues that boosting class size for great teachers would save money that could then be funneled into bonuses for those educators taking on a larger load. No, 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 no. Stop. How is it that this article started off talking about people, teachers are in a really tough spot. People don't want to be teachers. Uh, teachers have it hard these days. Teachers are in a really tough situation. Let's boost their class sizes. We don't want bigger class sizes, even if it comes with more money, for God's sake. <sighs> Look, let me explain something in calm, reasonable language at a calm, reasonable volume. Shall I? The question every conscientious educator asks him or herself every day when they go into the classroom is, how will I help these students get better? Better at the skills mandated by the curriculum, better at interpersonal skills, better at being a citizen of the United States or whatever country they happen to live in, better at being a global citizen, being a better human being, better at life. People don't get better because there's some magician at the front of the room waving a wand and that, my wand is better than that other teacher's wand, so it doesn't matter how many kids you cram into my room because I have the right wand. <laughs> That's not how it works, okay? The way students get better is with individual attention from a good teacher, okay? And the more students you keep cramming into our classrooms, the less time we have to give each individual student individual attention, okay? And the same is true about people who are facing crises of, you know, self-harm or mental illness or whatever it is. We can't put the mentally ill into prison because 
mentally ill people don't get individual help in prison. And, and the same is true about students who are facing a hard time in school, right? They need individual help. And I can't give students much individual help if I've got 50 students per class or even 40 or 30. I have 30 students in my biggest classes, and I know that I'm lucky. There are teachers in Chicago and New York and other places where they have like 50 in a class. So I, I don't want to complain too loudly, but I will say that when I have, as I have had, 11 students in a class, I can give each one of them much more help. So don't talk about boosting my class size, NPR. What is wrong with you? Uh, ugh, the savings would come from a reduction in the overall teaching force, angering teacher unions and their allies. Yeah, their allies. Like most teachers! God damn. Riley says that whoever Riley is, I don't even know if we know who Riley is. Riley says his group, Deans for Impact, is all for giving teachers a raise if it's tied to better training that leads to higher graduation rates and other improved student outcomes. Now, look, again, that doesn't sound like a horrible idea, right? Like, you know, look, teachers, you want more money? You're going to have to help kids do better and graduate more and, and et cetera, et cetera. That sounds great. The problem is... The more, the higher you make the stakes, the more likely we are to have cheating and unethical behavior, okay? There are always people who are fixated on numbers. we got to get more kids to graduate. Um, and again, look, look, please don't think that I want fewer students to graduate. Of course not. But the question is, what does it mean for a student to graduate, right? Because a lot of people think, well, the school sets up certain criteria, and then if a student meets that criteria, they graduate. And so the question is, what are teachers doing to help the students meet that criteria? But very often what happens when we fixate on the numbers is that we just find ways to manipulate and massage the criteria so that the students not jumping as high as they need to, they're not clearing the bar, we're moving the bar a little bit to help that student. And we call it helping the student, but really it's because we're helping ourselves make it look like more kids are meeting the criteria and clearing the bar, but that's not what's happening. So all I'm saying is, be careful when we start talking about student outcomes and getting the numbers up because there's so many ways to massage those numbers and to cook the books. There's a great line in the wire about, you know, this is how juking the stats. This is how, you know, majors become corporals or what. I don't know the hierarchy levels, but it's, it's, it, it and, and, and the reason I get so mad about it is not just because it's, you know, not doing what people say it's doing, but because those of us who are really deeply invested in helping students actually do better in life, not just have the appearance of doing better, we see that the actual assistance that will actually help kids do better in life gets thrown away because we have to spend all our time making it look like students are doing better. And it drives me crazy because then I don't have as much time to give the individual students the individual attention they need. <sighs> All right, let's move on to something that will make me less angry. Another NPR story about education. Oh, God. Uh, the headline is, How do you motivate kids to stop skipping school? Now, I don't remember what this says, but let me guess. You're going to pay them to not skip school. It seems like a no-brainer. Offer kids a... See? I didn't even remember. I swear I didn't look at this again before I started reading it. <sighs> 
Offer kids a reward for showing up at school. Oh, wait. Actually, I think this is... No, no, this is... Not my bad. Actually, this is an NPR story that I like because it confirms my beliefs, not challenges it. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. No, this is good. It seems like a no-brainer. Offer kids a reward for showing up at school. This actually is about a study that disproves what I was complaining about, the idea that you pay kids to come to school. Uh, this shows why that's a bad idea. Okay, so it seems like a no-brainer. Offer kids a reward for showing up at school and their attendance will shoot up. But a recent study of third graders in a slum in India suggests that incentive schemes can do more harm than good. Kids whose attendance rate was... So they, they had a lot of kids. They gave them... It was some reward thing. I think they gave them like an eraser if they came or, or something. It was, it was, I don't think it was cash, but it was it was something basically like a bribe. Come to school, you'll get this thing if you come for a certain number of days. Kids whose attendance rate was lowest started uh, lowest to start off with, and who did not improve enough to qualify for the reward. Uh, uh, to huh? in other words, they failed the challenge. Okay, so they started more than sixty percent of the lowest attenders fell into this category. For them, the aftermath was grim. They were now only about one fourth as likely to show up for class as they had been before the reward scheme was introduced. In other words, if they came to school a hundred days out of two hundred before this bribe thing started up, after the bribe system, you know, the study ended and there was no more bribe on offer, they only came 25 days out of 200. So they were much less likely to come because they had been told, well, if you come, you get this reward, and then they didn't make it, they didn't get the reward. And, and you know, the article doesn't say this, but the way I look at it is they get this training in a cynical way of looking at the world, which says the only reason to do something is if you get paid for it. And a lot of students have this attitude, even in the United States. My classroom, a lot of students are like, well, we should get paid for coming to school. This is our job. Blah, blah. And I always say, look, you are getting paid. Students who graduate from high school do much better in life than those who don't. So you're getting paid later for your work now. This is the marshmallow test. You know about that when kids are in a room and they say, here's a marshmallow. If you eat it now, you get to have a marshmallow. If you don't eat it for five minutes, when I come back, I'll give you another marshmallow and you'll have two marshmallows. A lot of kids can't not eat the marshmallow. Um, but that's, you know, so, but, 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 but I always tell them, look, besides education isn't just about making money. Education is about being a good person and helping make the world better and developing your skills and getting a, a craft and a, you know, a marketable talent and all the rest of it and enjoying life and understanding yourself and exploring the universe and whatever. Anyway, Business Week has a, uh, oh, this is another good article. News Corp, uh, News Corp is uh, Rupert Murdoch. They run Fox Ugh. News Corp's $1 billion plan to overhaul education is riddled with failures. <laughs> you should read the whole thing. It's a fascinating look into how tech does not solve every problem in the schools instantly. Who would have thought? Tablet computers and an online curriculum were supposed to help revolutionize schools. That hasn't happened. So there's some company called Amplify. I guess they were an offshoot of News Corp or something. I don't remember. But uh, so their experience shows how even the most deep pocketed new players find it challenging to change the way children are taught. Billionaires such as Microsoft Corp founder Bill Gates and real estate and insurance investor Eli Broad have expressed frustration their philanthropy hasn't done more to improve student achievement. Gee, welcome to my world. You mean to say you put in a lot of hard work and students didn't magically get better overnight? Well, welcome to my world, Bill Gates. You know... This is, I'm glad that happened. I'm glad Bill Gates is frustrated that he didn't have more of a, 
you know, improvement in student outcome because now he understands a little bit more about the scope of the problem. And I've been saying this for years. There's this really good panel discussion I saw one time, and this dude said, if you went into a cancer ward and told the doctors you have to cure cancer in the next five years, that would be insulting and ridiculous because it would ignore the scope of the problem. And the same is true about education. The point is that getting students to do better, getting better outcomes of education is a huge task. It's an enormous, difficult problem. And for people like Bill Gates to go barreling in saying, well, I know how to fix things. It's just not the way we do better with education. Rupert Murdoch is discovering his own challenges as he seeks to make a profit from overhauling education, as have other education entrepreneurs before him. And I hope he crashes and burns, because say what you want about Bill Gates' education plans, and I have a lot of bad things to say about him, I don't think they're as bad as Rupert Murdoch's plans for education. Ugh. Uh... Also, thanks to the Duchess for an article called An Open Letter to Governor Walker. And this is from MarquetteEducator.wordpress.com. And um, so, yeah, this is from somebody who is the 2010-2011 Wisconsin Teacher of the Year. How cool is that? So, this person writes, as one of the bona fide 2010-2011 Wisconsin Teachers of the Year, I feel the need to engage in one of the most valuable skills we teach our students, critical analysis. 2010-2011 was a surreal school year to be named Teacher of the Year, as that was the year your passage of Act 10. For those who don't know, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker passed this thing called Act 10, which was supposedly about balancing the budget. What it really did was destroy the unions of teachers and other public sector workers. Uh, your passage of Act 10 marked the exodus of thousands of outstanding veteran teachers from the profession they love and marked the beginning of an extreme strain on our ability to continue providing the excellent public education Wisconsin has always been known for. What have you done lately? In just the past month, it seems you have once again actively declared war on education in your own state. One, you've directed the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction to devise content exams that would certify anyone with a degree to become a certified teacher. Out of the article... Actually, they've gone farther now. The legislature and Scott Walker have proposed this new bill that says you don't even need a bachelor's degree to be a teacher. What the what? Back to the article. The ramifications of this move are nothing short of catastrophic and would grossly diminish what data has repeatedly shown to be the single most important factor in student learning, the quality of the classroom teacher. Allowing someone to teach without any training on how to teach in effective pedagogy and student behavior... Um, Brain research, motivation, and classroom management is akin to allowing someone who says, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV, to give you a heart transplant. Two, continuing your bellicose streak, you cut to the jugular by proposing a 13% across-the-board budget cut from the Wisconsin University System, our cornerstone of higher education, the source of much of our skilled and educated workforce, the center for research and development for our state. Aside from clearly being anti-education, this move is clearly anti-growth. Three, psychological warfare has been your most recent tactic when you attempted to, and later tried to blame it on a clerical error, revise the, quote, Wisconsin idea, the sacred credo of the UW system articulated over a century ago. You sought to omit mention of public service and improving the human condition. You do realize that as governor, you are considered a public servant. You also tried to delete the phrase, basic to every purpose of the system is the search for truth. Truth. Hmm. I guess I shouldn't be surprised about that one. Your tenure as governor has demonstrated nothing less than a systematic attempt to dismantle public education, the cornerstone of democracy, and the ladder of social mobility for any society. Yes, thank you, Teacher of the Year, whoever your name is. 
Uh, with uh, the Wall Street Journal, GOP contender Walker draws Wall Street cash. Hey, here's a little crossover moment. How about that? Wall Street is warming up to Wisconsin's gov- Republican Governor Scott Walker. Boo. <laughs> Several GOP fundraisers from the financial services industry and other Manhattan business sectors are hosting donor events for Mr. Walker, a likely presidential candidate, when he visits New York next week. The events show that while former Florida Governor Jeb Bush and New Jersey Governor Chris Christie have strong support in New York money circles, neither has a lock on the city's big dollar donors. Several fundraisers who backed GOP nominee Mitt Romney in 2012 are now helping Mr. Walker. Well, they didn't get Romney elected. Let's hope they don't get Walker elected. (laughs) Who is best known for challenging Wisconsin public sector unions and winning three statewide elections in a presidential swing state. Financial services executive Jonathan Burkhan, who, like Mr. Scaramucci, raised money for Mr. Romney in 2012, is hosting an event for Mr. Walker in New York next Thursday. Quote, there are a lot of establishment people who want to support Scott, he said. They call him Scott. They're tight. You know, they're on first name basis. Like, what is that? Wall Street support would augment a national donor network Mr. Walker has established over the course of his three statewide elections, including... See, and this is the thing. Look, he did survive the recall that we tried to get him out of office. I'll bet a large part of that was because of money from outside the state. But again, again, there was probably a lot of money coming in from outside the state to get rid of him as well. So, to be fair. Although a lot less money probably. Whatever. Uh, The 2012 recall became a national battle between conservatives and allies of labor unions. Over the last four... See, again, look. Conservatives and allies of labor unions. Those are the two sides of this argument, right? No. It's conservatives and business organizations on the one side and working people and unions on the other. Let's Let's not kid ourselves. Working people are a group it's always just unions and the unions have such a bad name in the world now that anybody who supports anything that benefits working people is like well you're part of the you're an ally of the unions it's pathetic over the last four years scott walker has raised more than 80 million dollars from 300,000 donors across all 50 states according to a spokesman three quarters of that came from donations of less than 75 dollars you see it's ordinary people yeah, whatever. I don't want to hear that. All right, we got to talk about killer robots because we're almost to the end of second hour. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're Before dead. So that we could have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. Ask him if he is not a hobo. Why does he have a bindle? Beetle boop. Here is a club sandwich. Um, yeah, these military-funded robots learn by watching YouTube. Those fearing the rise of an all-powerful artificial intelligence like Skynet, these, okay, you know what, look, journalists writing about robots, you're not allowed to mention RoboCop, Skynet, The Matrix, Terminator, or HAL from 2001 ever again. We get it. Robots are becoming more and more like the killer robots from science fiction movies. Fine. We got it. Move on. Just report on this stuff and tell us what's new. You don't have to put some reference to these in every article now. Uh, Robots are now learning by watching YouTube. Depending on your views of the video sharing service, that can be hilarious or frightening. But so far, the machines are just watching cooking videos, according to researchers backed by the United States Defense Advanced Projects Research Agency, DARPA. Now, out of the article for a second, I just want to remind everybody, DARPA is a very important uh, part of the U.S. government because they 
were instrumental in creating the internet, okay? Everyone makes the joke, Al Gore said he invented the internet, blah, 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 whatever. The point is that DARPA, a U.S. government agency, spent billions and billions of our tax dollars for like 30 years, in addition to, you know, organizations or elsewhere in the world, and they created the internet. And it's a good thing they did. This is a good example of government spending doing something awesome because we all love the internet, right? Right. And it wouldn't have happened without huge spending of federal tax dollars. I just want to remind everyone of that. Whenever we talk about DARPA, we should immediately think, thank goodness they created the internet. Uh, the computer scientists from the University of Maryland have succeeded in getting humanoid robots to reproduce what they see in a set of YouTube cooking clips, including recognizing, grabbing, and using the right kitchen tools. Part of DARPA's Mathematics of Sensing Exploration, uh, Exploitation and Execution program, the research involves getting the machines to understand what's happening in a scene, not just recognizing objects within it. More significantly, the machines were able to autonomously decide the most efficient combination of motions they observed to accomplish the task at hand. Other YouTube videos that they observed included two girls and one cup. That's a joke. It's not in the article. Robots are not watching that video. And please, whoever you are, do not go looking for that video. It's the, uh, the most disgusting thing that's ever been on the internet. For, forget I said it. I shouldn't even mention it. It's a horrible, horrible thing. Uh, moving on. Japanese bank introduces robot workers to deal with customers and branches. Oh, man. Japan's biggest bank is preparing to unveil robot employees with a human touch. Yeah, a human touch. Now, NAO, a 58 centimeter, 1 foot 11 inches tall humanoid developed by the French company Aldebaran Robotics, a subsidiary of the Japanese telecoms and internet giant SoftBank, will begin work on a trial basis at one or two branches of Mitsubishi UFJ Financial Group starting in April. Depending on his performance, more robots could appear at other branches in the coming months. <laughs> Equipped with a I just love the idea, like, I'm here to get my, uh, to uh, withdraw some money, please. Your account is empty. It can't be what your account is empty. Do not complain or I will liquefy you. Uh, <laughs> equipped with a camera on his forehead, now is programmed to speak 19 languages. See? It's more like C-3PO than, than the Terminator, right? He analyzes customers' emotions from their facial expressions and tone of voice. Let me talk to a person! You seem upset. Can I help you with something? Enabling him to greet customers and ask which services they need. See, and look, I mean, I know this is where we're headed and it's going to happen eventually, but you've tried talking to a robot on the phone trying to get tech support or Siri doesn't understand what you're saying, right? Voice technology is not that good yet. So I don't know if you would be rushing into this. The 5.4 kilogram robot who was born in Paris in 2006, born as in quote marks, uh, lived up to his billing with a faultless interaction with an English-speaking customer during a presentation in Tokyo this week. Yeah, flawless presentation. That was rehearsed 17,000 times. What? Give me a break. Hello and welcome, now said. I can tell you about money exchange, ATMs, opening a bank account, or overseas remittance. Which one would you like? Uh, ATMs. I heard opening a bank account. Is that correct? No. <laughs> you have chosen Feather. I recommend Feather Touch. You have chosen Power Drive. 
Is that correct? Um, <laughs> you need a bisexual house share in Walthamstow. Is that correct? Uh, <laughs> Mitsubishi UFJ is one of several Japanese firms that are investing in, quote, non-human resources amid calls by the Prime Minister Shinzo Abe for the country to embark on a robot revolution to counter the country's shrinking workforce and boost growth. Yes, robots will save us. Uh, Nestle Japan has I don't know what this is I haven't finished reading the sentence and it's been a while since I added it to my show notes but I just love the idea of Nestle Japan creating robots because for those who don't know Nestle is a horrible evil corporation who is I've never bought Nestle stuff in like 20 years because there's this website called babymilkaction.org you can learn more there Uh, Nestle does this thing where okay one of their big products is they sell like baby formula right and in order to get women in third world countries to buy it, they will give out free samples. And in certain extreme situations, one of two things will happen. Either they will mix the baby formula with the only water they have, which is contaminated, which might not be such a big deal for adults, but it can be deadly for babies. And so the infants die because they're drinking this contaminated water when they should be drinking mother's milk. Or the other thing that sometimes happen is they'll get the free samples and they'll give them to the baby with clean water and the baby's fine. But then the free samples run out and because the mother's milk hasn't been producing itself because, it, you know, the kid's been drinking formula for two months or whatever, uh, the mother can't produce enough milk and the baby dies of malnutrition. So babymilkaction.org has been begging Nestle for years to stop doing this and they refuse. So some people like me don't buy Nestle stuff. So anyway, uh, Nestle Japan has announced plans to employ Pepper, another Aldebaran SoftBank emotional robot, to sell its coffee machines at up to 1,000 outlets by the end of this year. This robot is going to be selling coffee machines? It's not serving coffee, it's selling machines. You should buy this other robot which makes coffee. I don't really, I have a coffee maker. You need a robot coffee maker from Nestle. I'm not going to buy anything from Nestle. Yes, you will. Kill all humans. Last month, the operator of Huis Ten Bosch Theme Park in Nagasaki said its two-story Hanna Strange, I guess Hanna is the Japanese word for strange, hotel would be run almost entirely by robots from its porters to room cleaners and front desk staff when it opens this summer. Isn't that a great idea? Robots being the only staff at a hotel. Housekeeping. Uh, no, thank you. I'm, I'm getting dressed, please. Housekeeping, coming in now. No, I'm naked. Get out of the way. Here to clean the room and kill all humans. What? Here to clean the room. What did you just say about killing all humans? Nothing. Get out of the way. I'm trying to clean the room. I'm trying to get dressed. I'm naked. Get out of my way. You're the rudest robot ever. Kill all humans. (laughs) Guests at the Futuristic Hotel will be given the option. This is not The Onion, by the way. This is a real news story. Where did this come from? (laughs) This is from The Guardian. Uh, Guests at the Futuristic Hotel will be given the option of using facial recognition technology to open the door to their room instead of a key. I guess that's fine. I don't really have a problem with it. Until someone cuts your face off like Hannibal Lecter in order to get into your room. Uh, who is Who is it? Hannibal Lecter. Who? Uh, room service. Wait a minute. Room service is a robot. Ah, you're Hannibal Lecter. Uh, about Here's some garbanzo beans and a nice Chianti. Ah! 
about 10 human employees will work alongside their robotic colleagues. Again, just think of the fun you get when you talk to robots on the phone. Now imagine you can't get into your hotel room without going through the same thing in person. Uh, hello, I am a robot. How may I help you? I can't get into my room. Uh, oh, you want room service. I'll be right back. No, I want to get into my room. I will be right back with a menu for room service. Ah! Why do you need to go get a menu? Wouldn't one of the things that a robot has on him be a digital menu? Wouldn't that make sense, robot? Kill all humans. Oh, man. All right, we are now well into our second hour. We got to talk about some hip hop. Uh, one, two, uh, one, two, uh, 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 yeah. Alright, look, Lupe Fiasco put out a new album. It's called, uh, what is it called? Tetsuo and Youth. And I saw something somewhere about why it's called that, but I don't remember what it is. And one of the songs is called Mural. And it's 8 minutes and 48 seconds long. And it's unbelievable. I'm just going to play you some of it. And there's nothing to say about it. It's just... Raw chemicals, vitamins and minerals, and Vicodin with inner tubes wrapped around the arm. To see the vein like a chicken on the barn. Top cat chat, let's begin another yawn. Let's fly sausage cheese, or is it chicken palm? The roosters don't fly like boosters don't buy. So what powers cowards to get them to the top? Just to fall asleep, listening to Bach. The ribbon in the sky is the ribbon that I drop. Dribbling the eye across the prism of a clock. That lacks meaning, but racks up stacks of fat reading to catch cheap and wrapped up plants from trap dealings. Now what's the coffin with a scratch ceiling? And what's the talking without the match feeling? That's berry living and cherry picking every lemon from your berry system, then proceed with the pack feeding. When I was young, I had visions of another world, sneaking looks at the porn stash of my brother Hurl. Incense smoke made vortices and other curls, casting calls for porn films and ad space for rubber girls. I like my pancakes cut in swirls Moroccan moles and undercover squirrels I like cartoons, southern cities with large moons Faith healers, ex-female drug dealers and art booms Apologize for my weird mix What tastes like hot dogs and tear drips And looks like pantomime and clear bricks And smells like shotguns and deer piss They on a hunt, kinda salty that I'm going hard First part of a party that I throw in pods One minute you playing pool, next minute you throwing darts But that's how you do with a party that you throw in bars I run the gambit like I'm throwing cards From popular mechanics to overdosing hard Paint cold pictures like Nova Scotia landscapes Nerd gang, McMandelbrot sets when we handshake A word game back up, playing the condemn lakes back up and it just keeps going like that for nine minutes. It's unbelievable. It's one of the most like I when I first heard this album, I was like, I was I was liking it. And then I got to this song, and I was just like, the first two minutes right there, I was just like, oh my god, this is blowing my mind. And I looked at it, and I'm like, this song is nine minutes, and it just he just keeps going. It's unbelievable. Rain, like a slight chance of rain when it's rain and rain like deer slaves to Santa Claus, slave man, but rain like queens that rain over May man and not queen like queen killer, rep city bohemian queen, but queen like white glove, wave hand and not wave hand like it's a heat wave. So you make a fan by waving your hand. I'm talking wave like you saying, hey, man, 
and not hate for horses and horses like you almost voiceless you gotta treat your vocal cords like it's a fortress and treat every single one of your words like reinforcements and especially when you're recording because that's the portion that's important when i was reporting it i was poor unbelievable i mean i just can't say enough about this song i listen to it like every day i'm i'm blown away every i mean because he's all over the world with it too he's not just talking about one thing and I, I think that this, if this song doesn't prove that Lupe Fiasco is one of the greatest lyricists since Chuck D, I don't know what will. I mean, it's just unbelievable. He is everywhere on this song. He talks about Mandelbrot sets. He talks about cutting pancakes into swirls. He talks about political activism. He talks about, you know, the realities of street economics. He talks about art. Uh, it's just magnificent. I am just blown away by this song. The rest of the album is actually kind of hit or miss. Like, I don't think you'd be um, doing yourself a disservice if you only listened to, you know, you only bought Mural, and there's another song called Deliver, which is about uh, the chorus says, Pizza Man, don't come here no more. And it's all about how, you know, the state of things in the ghetto are so bad that the pizza man won't deliver there anymore. So um, I really like that song a lot. I think it's amazing. And um, next time uh, I'm going to tell you about Shadia Mansour. And she has a really cool song about the kafia uh, with uh, M1 from Dead Prez. Rock on. And someday, I know I keep saying this, I really will do that special show about the Radio Lab episode about hip-hop, which drove me crazy! But we're into our second hour now, and I gotta get to the quote of the week. Friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears. Stop repenting, cause the ending is near. But don't panic, you can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention, you gotta listen to hear. John Henry O'Hara, born 1905, died 1970, was an Irish American writer. Uh, he first, this is from Wikipedia, he first earned reputation for short stories and later became a best selling novelist before the age of 30 with appointment in Samara and Butterfield 8. Uh, he was a keen observer of social status and yada, yada, yada. Okay, so he I came across this quote recently. I love it. Most of your clean-cut types don't have any talent. When they get done washing their face in the morning, that's about the end of their contribution. <laughs> what a great quote. All right, people, that's it. Oh, my goodness, what a show. You're probably exhausted. I'm exhausted. I've been recording this for two days now. Uh, yeah, show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse, S-Y-N-A-P-S-E. My website is The Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is at fbesp.org, with links to music I've written and fiction I've written and multimedia I've made and lots of other stuff. If you've ever seen the movies Barton Fink and or Primer, I've got multimedia presentations about those films that can hopefully help shed light on them. Um, I will give shout outs this week to you for listening uh shout out to the duchess for the awesome article she gave me jason Galar, uh for those articles and uh the people who have been asking for this syncast i think jason g mentioned in an email he was waiting for a new one and there was someone on twitter let me actually look it up because i don't like to forget people who are supportive and i'll be honest Hearing from people that you want a new episode is so encouraging. I, it makes me feel so good to know that people really like hearing um, this stuff and they want something. So uh, I don't think I'll be able to find it. But um, yeah, thank you very much. To, there's just so much here. I should write people's names down as soon as they send me a tweet. It's very nice of you. Uh, I don't know if it was Chris MJW or... Um, Phil Olson. I mean, Phil Olson's always been real supportive, so thanks to him. Uh, anyway, you know who you are if you've been giving me love on Twitter. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope this is worth the wait. And, uh, yeah, it's just been 
A long time coming. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there's dumb stuff I forgot to cut out. I'm a very busy man. Deal with hey, it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thank you for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions or anything that's on your mind or anything you think about when you listen to this show. Drop me a line, please. ESP at FBESP.org or tweet me at Duke Scath. And finally, I'm going to stop talking now. Now, Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. You know, that song at the end there doesn't really work as... I mean, it doesn't sound like an end-of-the-show kind of song. I don't know. Every time I hear it, I, I'm like, yeah, amped up, let's move now, turn on, tune in. But it's the end of the show. It should be like, tune out. Uh, actually, that song is by a group called Meet Be Manifesto. It's really cool. It's basically one dude named Jack Dangers. And uh, he uh, they did a song called We Done, which would work a lot better at the end of a song. But they, they have, their best album is called Satyricon. It's so good. So You should listen to Meet Be Manifesto's album, Satyricon. Uh, yeah, it's a really good album. And now I'm going to really stop talking. And I'm probably going to edit this tomorrow because I don't feel like dealing with it for yet another hour. But I'm done. And... I guess I'm just done. Do I have anything else to say? There's got to be something else I need to say to the world. Uh, looking around my office, um, I got these glasses for my Jermaine outfit for Flight of the Concords last Halloween, and I was thinking, like, ooh, I should wear those at school. But they're uh, a little small, so they kind of press on my head, which is going to increase the likelihood of me developing a headache at school, which is already pretty high. Um but so I'm I'm like I have them like wrapped around several books and the hope is that it'll sort of stretch them out gently so that I can wear them without getting a headache and uh you know it's a typical affectation I guess but I don't know I just want to look weird and uh yeah I like looking weird at school and wearing glasses that don't have actual prescription lenses in them is a good way to do that I guess if I pop the lenses out that would be even more weird but uh whatever I don't know anyway all right I'm really going to stop now <laughs> room service open up room service i'm here to clean the room and kill all humans what did you say clean the room